Welcome to the Canine Classroom, a podcast for dog training professionals and dog enthusiasts where we discuss training, behavior, and everything in between. We're two friends and dog trainers that share a passion for dogs. We're constantly learning, exploring, and questioning each other's ideas as well as our own so we can become better at what we do. We're here to provide helpful advice, have open conversations, ask questions, get answers, as well as hear from colleagues and experts in the industry, regardless of method and training style. So take a seat and get your notepad out because class is in session. What's going on, everyone? This is the Canine Classroom. I'm your host, Vinny Viola, and I'm here with Anthony DeMarinas. And tonight we have a special guest, Chad, Chad Mackin. What's going on, guys? Hey, hey. Hey, guys. How are you guys doing today? I know Anthony's probably got sore legs. He uh, went hiking today. How are you feeling over there? All right, not too bad. Vinny decided he was too much of a little bitch. Couldn't wake <laughs> up for the 9 a.m. Uh, Hike. I, to be fair, I did that hike last week and yep, I was disappointed. Yep, and, uh, it was just like uphill to uphill to uphill. No, to uphill. No, there no. was no downhill. I don't mind no, going there was up a and then down. downhill because you had to go up for a very long time. It was. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, Krista took me and I was like, so is this like an easy one? I don't know. It should be. She never gives me a straight answer. <laughs> this was actually, I have to tell you, it was definitely a challenging it was definitely a challenging hike this one way more challenging than the other some of the other places well if you had the map did you have the map because one of them it's like literally called mount misery <laughs> no so. yeah we we saw that on um whatever the app was that we were all trail at but uh we didn't know until after we were already on that so <laughs> mm. interesting but anyway interesting. so yeah it was it was nice it was nice so what's going on chad what's been up with you what's new man you know i just got i i just came straight home, came home from work slammed some food down my throat real quick and sat down to do this so uh, i know we're, we're keeping you up we're, we're not letting you rest it's like what is it eight o'clock by you yeah and like i mean I, i'm scheduled to get done with work at seven and okay. so i live about 15 minutes from my work so normally that's plenty of time for me to get home get settled in but I didn't get to leave at seven like I was supposed to because I had some stuff, some unfinished stuff. So I had to, but that's why I always, I never book anything before eight o'clock just for that, because in this industry, you don't always get to go home when you think you do, you know? So I had to finish no. up. Oh. <laughs> no, you're right though. You're right though. Because, and it's so funny, the days that you finish on time, isn't it so amazing? You're just like, yes, I actually get to finish on time. It almost yeah. feels like you're off early. Yeah, it's weird. No, it's true. <laughs> I was going to say the first part of my day was pretty slow and I felt pretty good about it. But then the last from like four o'clock on, it's just been it's just been like running, running, just <laughs> crazy, crazy. A lot of unexpected stuff, um, you know, just just weird stuff. Like a guy came to pick up his his sister's dog didn't know which leash was there so we have a we have cubbies in the front where we put the leashes when they come in and so people know they come in they grab their dog's leash they tell us who they are we call back on the radio we grab the dog and i'm like which leash is he's like i don't know so i'm pulling leashes out of cubbies looking for tags to see if i can like figure out and they're trying to get the owner on the phone like that just those things slow you down so much and by the time we're done there's like 10 people waiting to get their dogs and it's just 
this is the sort of thing that just like once you get behind on sending dogs home, it's hard to really catch up. So that's just how it happened. I have like three dogs and 15 leashes. And the only reason, and they're all the same leash and I just buy more. So I just leave them all over the place. And I still mm -hmm. spend like 10 minutes every morning being like, where the fuck did I put my leash? <laughs> and a lot of times it's like attached to me. It's like on my back already or hanging from some doorknob somewhere in my house. So, you know, that's one thing that I'm actually real. I'm a pretty disorganized guy in general, like, <laughs> like just, just as a general rule, like, I don't, I don't know where half the things I need are when I need them, but uh, <laughs> I, I'm almost religious about hanging up my leash like especially my work leash in the same place every day so i know where it is um my keys i have a key hook oh don't even get me started with always, the keys <laughs> always there um like there's a couple of things that i'm really really organized about and my leashes and my keys are two of them uh they're just like those those are things that i'm really consistent about thankfully so I never see I'm so disorganized that I'm like the only thing that's consistent is I start knowing like where I probably lost it like I have a whole I'm like the first place I go is like I gotta find my pants that I wore yesterday mm -hmm. and like they're probably on the bathroom floor in a corner and I'm like maybe my keys are in here and then if not there like maybe the crack in between my bed and the wall you know like I have the spots where I'm like these are probably where this stuff is gonna be because yeah the keys I'm horrible with um, but I've been, it's like a new, I don't know, New Year's resolution. We got like hooks near the door now. So I'm trying to make like a every day. Oh, are you actually using, go. are you using them? They'll be, I'm honest. trying, I'm trying. Look, Anthony, <laughs> what I could say <laughs> is that I'm trying. My brother-in-law loses his keys and his wallet all the time. So now whenever he goes to like my parents' house, if we're there at the same time, I usually take them. I hide them somewhere. Cause I know he's going to lose them anyway. So I figure I might as well put them somewhere and let him look around. It's the funniest thing to just watch him for 10 <laughs> minutes walk around the house and he won't say like because he's so embarrassed because he loses them so much he doesn't say anything he will walk around the house aimlessly and quiet as hell <laughs> won't say anything to anyone 10 minutes passes and then he'll finally say something because he's so like pissed off that he lost <laughs> his keys meanwhile i just put them somewhere <laughs> oh man noted if you're ever here and i lose my keys i'll yeah. know why Yep. Yep. <laughs> well, now the, I know. So now <laughs> the comedian Joe Coy has a really good bit about that, about how his mom reacts when he loses keys. I'm not giving you spoilers, but if you, I don't know if you can find that on like, like Spotify or something like that. It's hilarious. Like if he ever asked his mom to help him find his keys, it's, it's amazing. Who is uh, this? Joe Coy. Uh, uh, J O uh, K O I is his last name. I think, uh, He's a pretty funny comedian, but that, that bit about it, like he does a lot of stuff about his mom because, uh, you know, the, uh, it, she's she's Filipino and I guess he is, too. But, you know, he doesn't have an accent or anything, but, he, you know, he he does his mom's voice with with her accent. And um, <laughs> like it's it's just like all of his bits about his mom are really funny. But the one about when he lost, loses his keys is really good. So like I said, I'm not going to spoil it for you guys, but uh, all right, that's the homework. That's the homework this week, guys. Yeah, I couldn't go, do justice, but I'm pretty good. <laughs> Can we um, actually uh, let Chad just let him let everyone know who he is for those who maybe don't know? Him? Oh, we're saying you're saying that we have to introduce this guy. No, let him just you know. <laughs> you know, I mean, we tried to talk to him before. He's like, "I'm a dog trainer. Come on, yeah." So let's yeah, let's nah, get it. You that's could, cool. He could say that. I mean, I, a little yeah. bit more than dog trainer. 
So yeah, I'm a dog trainer. Uh, next month, I'm going to celebrate my 30th anniversary as a professional dog trainer. So congratulations, uh, nice. Kind of, yeah, thank you. Took my first contract to train a dog in March of 1993, and back then, at least as far as I was concerned, training was done because I said so. Like that was the mentality. Um, uh, my first, my very first training book and my Bible for the first two years of training was the Keeler method of dog training. Um, uh, uh, and that's where I started. And now I'm like, uh, I'm about two shades short of being what someone would call a force-free trainer these days. Uh, like I, 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 and I hate to say that because first of all, I hate the labels. I hate, um, labeling us as uh, ourselves as balanced or force-free or whatever like uh, I think there's better ways to classify ourselves like um, you know if you call me balanced and then you have somebody whose idea of starting a dog off is you know just uh, hitting them with a high level of an e-collar the moment they step in front of them that guy and I don't have anything in common in the way we handle dogs or the way we think about dogs our philosophy is completely different but then you can put me you know like I feel like I have a much more kindred spirit in somebody like Denise Fenzi, um, who also doesn't call herself force-free, but she does say, and she was on the Something to Bark About podcast, which is one of my podcasts that I've been, that I've had in the past. Uh, you know, she said, I don't call myself force-free, but I don't use positive punishment in training. And uh, not that I'm opposed to it. I just don't find it useful. And uh I, I feel like I have a lot more in common with her than I do with a lot of people who use the name balanced, but uh, according to the rules, we're in separate camps. And I don't like that. Uh, I think there's a whole bunch of us, like the, 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 the lie that we've been sold by the industry is that you have over here, you have balanced trainers over here, you have force free trainers and they're unique subsets and they don't, they don't have much in common. And we've been conditioned through decades of sort of intellectual nonsense to distrust and dislike each other. And uh, we tell myths about each other. You know, the force-free trainers and believe that the balanced trainers are, uh, you know, relying on pain and fear, fear primarily, that we don't understand reinforcement, that we don't understand how to build behaviors. We just know, we just know how to, you know, beat up on dogs to get what we want. And uh, the balanced trainers believe that the force-free trainers, uh, as a rule, don't even say no to dogs and that they're just permissive and let everything go. And the truth is, most people who use those terms don't fit either one of those myths. And so one of the things that I've been really focusing on in my own personal life, in my own way I, I view this is I try and find people who see dogs the way I do, regardless of what tools they use, what techniques they use, what methods they use. When they look at a dog, when someone presents them with a dog problem, do they see the dog as an obstacle? Or do they see the dog as, as a being that they need to help figure out how to get along in this world that's way more confusing than they'll ever fully understand? Are, are, they, are they a coach or a cop? And uh, I get along with people who see themselves as coaches. I don't usually get along with people who see themselves as cops. So... Uh, so anyway, I've made a, a, a huge change uh, in that uh, over the years. But uh, to finish out the introduction, if I haven't <laughs> completely gone off rails, um, like I said, I, 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 do teach, I do teach workshops. I've taught workshops uh, all over the United States, Canada, the UK, uh, Australia. 
Um, I did a three C tour Australia with my friend Jay Jack, who I think was on your, your program already. Was no, he? not yet. No, not yet. Uh, Actually, should... we emailed him this week. We emailed. Him. Oh yeah, you should get him on. He's fun. Oh, uh, yeah. And uh, so we did that, and we used to have a podcast together called Dog Trading Conversations, which. Yes. Uh, was which it's not available on spotify and it will not ever be available on spotify i don't believe so you'll have to go old school and get your apple podcast or your other podcast apps um uh but the other one i did was something to bark about which is available on spotify um and that's gonna i'm gonna be i took a long break from any kind of public dog training stuff uh shortly after uh the covid lockdowns hit i uh I stepped away from social media and almost had no presence there. And I slowly built an Instagram account back up. And I've, you know, the past like three months, I come back on Facebook, I guess. Um, uh, but I, I wasn't doing a whole lot for that time. And that podcast kind of died even before that. Uh, again, I had a lot of, uh, a lot of things changed in my life really rapidly. Like in a matter of months, I, you know, a significant relationship of, of almost a decade ended, uh, which forced me to move because we were living together. And then I had to get in, I had to, I had to switch jobs. And uh, so when all that happened, I just was focusing on getting my, myself back, my, my life back into balance and my, and my head back into balance. And, and, so uh, I've been trying to think about getting that podcast going again. I I I, sh I did an interview with I'm not gonna I'm not gonna throw too many spoilers out, but I did an interview with a with a with an author who whose work I've been into for a long time, probably six months ago. I sat down and did an interview with this guy, and it's all ready to go. I just haven't I just haven't actually I don't want to put it up on the podcast until I'm ready to start podcasting again. So I'm just sitting. Well, I'm on looking it. forward to it because I actually I like your podcast and. Um, <laughs> Yeah, you had you you had really, really good, insightful. I actually, you know, as much as I like when you were interviewing people, I actually liked also when you were just by yourself, conversing and uh, your own thoughts. I always thought those were the most. I I just found those to be so much more interesting for me because it's hard to just sit there. First of all, doing this with Vinny, like it's hard to do it by yourself, mm. and. I mean, yours were, were, they would go for 30, 40 minutes, just you going on about like your thoughts on a specific topic. I always found those to be so useful. Well, I appreciate that. And it is hard. It's, it's, there's, no, there's nothing more intimidating than staring at a microphone mm. and just talking. <laughs> with right? nothing but yourself. <laughs> yeah. Like, like at least with like this, I can look at you guys. We can have this like back and forth. And with, with yeah. the dog training conversations, we can look at each other. But when there's just a microphone and you're just watching the waves on your recording software uh, you know, go, go by as you're, as you're talking, it is really intimidating. And of course I, I, I got, I had a lot of uh, ability to go back and edit out a lot of the audible pauses and the stutters and the, and the, the, the stuff that, that didn't work but uh we don't do that around here we just let it all <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> everything you well, hear is perfect because we just get it right from the beginning well you know like like that's what i like about dog training conversations we, we didn't do hardly any editing yeah like, yeah like uh there might be a time where we get done and go you know what i don't like that part that didn't feel good like maybe we're a little too it's really too shitty to so about something or, or a little bit too condescending we go, you know what that's not good that's not the that's not the message we want to put out there and so we would but it was very rare 
or sometimes we cut something out for confidence reasons like oh somebody doesn't want this story told so mm -hmm. but for the most part it was just we just recorded it and then we left Bo Bo DeCourcy our producer like like Jay go teach a class and I go bye Bo and he'd sit there and he'd he'd uh <laughs> he'd do whatever needed his magic to get it uploaded because at the time i didn't even know how to do that like uh so like i have been working on uh youtube videos lately and uh mostly um, I, mostly explainer type videos which sort of like the the, the idea is that i want to be able to i i kind of feel like the podcast world is uh, it's oversaturated right now yeah right it's hard to get it's hard to get people to, to pay attention and there's a lot of dog podcasts when we were doing dog training conversations there weren't that many there weren't that many and uh and now there's a lot of them and i, I hear from a lot of people that just can't keep up anymore and so i thought about doing a thing like you see like rogan will do he'll do youtube and the podcast like he'll yes. just put the video up and i said well you know maybe maybe i can do that but that's been a process of learning how to uh like i i said before that there's nothing more intimidating than staring in the microphone but i was wrong the thing that's one thing that's more int intimidating than staring in a microphone is staring into a video camera and a microphone <laughs> and uh and so so um i i've got some stuff in the can already i just finished editing one uh yesterday or this morning actually um about dominance uh and uh it should be putting up pretty quickly, um, pretty quickly. But I don't. But I again, I'd like to. But that, that's like fifteen minutes, and I like for podcast my podcast to be at least twenty minutes. Like I feel like any less than that, and people are going to feel a little cheated. Um, you know, I like to go for forty-five minutes to an hour as as a general rule. But uh, you know, uh, it's fifteen minutes, and it's all I had to say on the subject, so I wasn't going to stretch it. But so that's been a learning curve too, learning how to uh, present that way i bought a new camera for it and uh it's 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 bit it's that's a whole other world you know <laughs> so but yeah it's been fun uh so that'll be back i mean something to bark about will be back and you know the youtube channel will be back and, and you know so the hey the so you guys said i have a chance to plug my stuff at the end i guess i just did it all in this little intro so, <laughs> well, <laughs> so we we'll, we'll remind you at the end also there you go it's an intro and an outro all at the same time now we can go off and banter for two hours we don't stick to 45 minutes so i apologize um <laughs> well that's fine however you're gonna have to i'm <laughs> here so um wow well how do we how do we go on from that i was going to try to like slowly introduce you and i guess you actually started to talk about this i wanted to go back to the quote i recently saw you post the man who views the world at 50 the same as he did at 20 has wasted 30 years of his life so i wanted to and you briefly touched on this ask you two questions is um one wh what do you think is something that you changed the most on and i know you kind of touched on that and what do you see yourself curious about now or changing about currently like what's keeping you excited um oh, man I beside so besides youtube videos <laughs> yeah so like uh, one of the things that's really okay so uh the thing that's changed the most is uh just the literally the way i view dogs like if you if you're familiar with the keeler system and 
you know, this is where I get in danger because, you know, uh, we talked about it early on the uh, Dog Training Conversations podcast. We talked about the Keeler method and we get uh, Tony Anchetta as a guest on. And Tony is the guy that if you want to call yourself a Keeler trainer, uh, he, you've got to get his blessing. Like he's the guy that's sort of the gatekeeper for that, that name. And, uh, and I said at the time that I thought every professional trainer should be familiar with Keeler. Um, because there's a lot of value in the way it's structured, not necessarily in all the techniques and, and, uh, but I, I had assumed that all of the people that I sent there who were fans of what Jay and I were talking about that time would see that there was a, an element of the system, the foundational element of the system that in that, if you read the Keeler books and you, and you look at the way the exercises are structured, there is a presumption in the in in that method that dogs are just trying to get away with as much bullshit as possible and your job <laughs> is to prevent them like all through the book it's like the dog will try and get away with this or, or, or whatever there's a very adversarial approach to training and that was like i said that was where i cut my teeth and that's where i that's where i grew up and in my head at the time it's like every dog that didn't obey a command was trying to thumb their nose at me was trying to get away with it. And my job was to say, you will obey every single time. And uh, it's just like, forget for a moment whether it's true or not. I don't think it's true at all, but let's forget for a moment whether it's true or not. It's a real shitty way to go through life. Like we can't, we can't, I don't believe that I can hold that opinion and also say dogs are man's best friend at the same time. I don't think those two ideas, this is my best friend is secretly trying to take over my household is not, those two statements are not compatible, right? The guy who's trying to take over your household ain't your best friend, right? And your best friend isn't the guy who's trying to take over your household. That's not how friends operate. And so you put your so you put people in an adversarial relationship, like uh, George Cockrell, uh, who you also should get on the program. I never managed to get him on any of my podcasts. I should do that. Um, but uh, George Cockrell, a third generation dog trainer, he's got a quote that I love. He says, uh, "People get a dog because they want a friend." They call us because they don't want their friend to be an asshole. And, uh, and that's a much better way to think of it, right? Like, uh, and of course, I would go, and I think George would agree with me, the dogs aren't being assholes. They just seem like assholes because they're frustrating us, right? Uh, for the most part, I think, I, I don't think that's the case. So the biggest shift was when I started to go, hey, you know what? These dogs, just like me, are doing the best they can with the tools they have available. If I want them to do better, I got to give them better tools. And whether that means uh, emotional regulation, if that means they have uh, behaviors that they can default to when they're uncertain, if that means uh, that I need to teach them how to exist in a particular space in a particular way, uh, teach them how to vent their frustration in a different way how to you know biologically fulfill them like there's a lot of ways i can go about doing that but the point is if i'm not liking what the dog is doing i have to start with the point that he's doing the best he knows how and if i don't like it i gotta help him you know um and that's the biggest shift and once you make that shift everything changes like the whole landscape of what you're doing changes um one of uh my favorite quotes which is often misquoted uh, is the dog's not your dog's not being a problem he's having a problem 
-hmm. and uh it's been it's been represented i see people quote it sometimes there's some memes going around where people quote it where they're saying the dog's not giving you a hard time he's having a hard time it's mm -hmm. a slightly different thing but i like i like the original wording better i think it's more clear um uh but yeah you know the, the people call us because their dogs are having problems and uh my job is to solve the people's problem by solving the dog's problem and there are trainers out there who will solve the people's problem without solving the dog's problem. And that's not too hard to do. You can suppress just about anything with enough, uh, with enough intensity and consistency. And, uh, you know, futility is an amazingly powerful tool. And I use it. I use it a lot, but I don't use it. I don't do it, use it to, to squash a dog. I use it to get a dog to give up on certain things in exchange for other things. And, uh, so, but I'm not, I, I don't feel good if I solve the people's problem without solving the dog's problem. And so one of the things I'll, I'll talk about when I have a client who's struggling with, if I have a client who I'm struggling to get compliant, they're, they're not doing the things that, that I'm asking them to do for whatever reason. And I don't get that a lot, by the way, because again, in that, uh, that adversarial mindset, people are doing things with and to their dogs that they don't enjoy. Because people don't enjoy getting coming home from work and go, okay, now I got to fight with my dog over whether he's going to sit or not. Nobody, nobody looks forward to that. Um, but when you do run into somebody who's just not putting the time in, like maybe I'm saying this dog needs to be needs more play or whatever, uh, I have this little kind of speech that I'll give. It's basically saying, listen, you called me because you're having a problem with your dog, and. You're, you're having a problem with your dog because your dog is having a problem. And my job, what I want to do is I want to solve your problem by solving his problem. And I'm going to ask for your help in doing that. I need you to help me help your dog. And that's where we're going to solve your problem. And I've never had anybody go, fuck that, fix my dog. Like, as soon as I frame it that way, they go, oh, I got to get on board. I've never had anybody not immediately get it. When I when I when I explain it that way, and so that's the biggest change, I think. Uh, and what I'm curious about, man, it's everything. So my most popular program right now, the one that I spend most of my day doing, is is it's it's, it's a drop off program. People drop the dog off in the morning, and they pick it up at night. And during the day, I get the dog out, and uh, I record a session with the dog. I got a little lavalier mic so people can hear me when I'm all over the room. And uh, I just got a, basically it's an iPad on a tripod that's set to get to capture most of the room. And I just work the dog and I talk to the room. I say, I would just say, talk, I would say talk to the camera, but I'm rarely looking at it. I'm just like <laughs> kind of narrating what I'm thinking and what I'm doing as I do it. And oh my God, that is amazingly beneficial because i hear myself saying things out loud that i'm thinking and that causes me to think questions and some of my my best insights in the past three years or so since we started this program have been from things that just kind of spilled out of my mouth while i was working with the dog <laughs> and, and and then those can create rabbit holes for me to run down um i'm uh so like like right now i've been really thinking about the the as we talked about before the division between so-called balanced and force-free trainers um a lot about emotional stability in dogs and and arousal versus calm uh 
one of the things that I think is really important for people to understand is that uh, as the dog is going to higher arousal, their behavior changes significantly. And I don't just mean, I mean, their ability to behave changes differently, changes dramatically. They have less ability to control their impulses. They have less ability to see things clearly. Uh, they also learn faster. Uh, you know, memory and uh, arousal, arousal are, are closely linked biologically. And if you're in a really high arousal state, you learn things, you remember things more strongly. The memories get encoded more strongly. Um, so this is why sport dog trainers, whether they talk about it or not, whether they know it or not, I'm sure a lot, I'm sure most of the high level guys like Ivan or Bart know this, but I don't know if the average sport dog trainer really realizes that working that dog in arousal is actually helping them encode memories. And this is why this is why people can always tell you like where they were when they first heard about 9/11 or you know I you know I'm a little bit older than you guys when the when the when the Challenger uh, space shuttle blew up or like my parents' generation when JFK was shot like there's these these touchstone moments where people will remember where they were, but the thing about that is when you have this strong emotional connection to a memory, uh, it does build a strong a strong encoding but also leaves room for a lot of error because like nobody can tell you what they were wearing when they heard about 9 11. Mm. they know where they were they know who they were who they were with but they don't remember much else right so the, the, you, you tend to get tunnel vision so when you have a dog that's in a really high state of arousal they're learning but the likelihood of them learning the wrong thing is greater so you have to manage the, that's why when they talk about capping arousal you want to keep that arousal where you have that high memory encoding without creating those errors. But the thing is, is sometimes those memories are not as accessible, accessible when the dog is in a low arousal state. So one of the things that's really important is if you're using high arousal, high drive training, you also need to do the same exercises in low arousal and low drive. So the dog makes sure, so that, so that you, you don't want part of the picture of the behavior to be the arousal level. If, if, if part of the picture comes down to the arousal level, then you're not going to have the dog. You, we always assume as trainers, I think that, that, that if we can get the dog to do it at high arousal, we can get them to do it at low arousal, but that's often not the case. That's often not the case often. And, and a lot of the problems that people deal with are kind of low arousal problems. You know, like I used to say that everything that, that you deal with is, is high arousal. But like if your dog is just out sniffing the corner of the yard, not really excited, but just really interested in a scent, and you call him, you may be able to call that dog off of, off a deer when he's really excited. But if he's in a scent, scent, he may be so casual about it that he doesn't even he's checked out, he's forgotten you exist. Because uh you've taught attention at high arousal and not attention at low arousal. So I think that's a, that's a piece of the puzzle that, that we miss a lot. And so I'm thinking a lot about that, about arousal, about uh, what they call valence or, or how the dog feels. Like, uh, not to tip my hand too much, but if you look at, um, there's two competing ideas of emotions uh, in the uh, neuroscience world. Uh, there's two models that, that uh, are at first glance competing, I should say. There's there's Dr. Pangsteps model, which uh, is has been fundamental to my approach to training for, you know, probably five or six, maybe seven years now. I don't know when I first was exposed to it. Um, but uh, and that's you have the you have the, the the four blue ribbon emotions and then three other basically there's seven emotional systems within any mammal and uh, learning how to work between them 
and then a few years, some uh, Dr. Lisa Feldman Barrett or Barrett Feldman, I forget the order that they're in, but she came out with a book called Emotions Are Made and basically said, she didn't address pain except directly, but she basically said that classical view of emotions is all wrong. No emotions are inherent. They're not innate. They are constructed in the fly. And uh, and I think, honestly, they're both correct. Like, I don't think they're saying different things. I think they're looking at the same process differently. But one of the things that she says is emotions start with something called interoception, which is uh, basically it's a it's a self-awareness and it's a change in arousal level and a change in uh, how you feel about the arousal. So she uses the terms arousal and valence and valence is just this obscure term. So I try not to use it. So to me, it's it's arousal and comfort. So like one of the problems with Pangsup's theory was I, I had run across this idea in sports psychology that um, excitement and fear are the exact same emotion biologically, but it's just how we feel about them. But fear by definition is, a, is an unpleasant condition by definition. So how can they be the same? Well, uh, Dr. Feldman Barrett gives us the answer to that. Uh, excitement is high arousal with a high level of comfort. Fear is high arousal with a low level of comfort. So we have a change in arousal. We have a feeling about that change. It's the same thing like if you, if you have... Uh, if you're if you are flattened, if you say people say you flatten a dog versus calming a dog, this is the argument that happens all the time. If you see anybody doing any kind of calming exercise with a dog, the question comes down. The, the criticism is going, oh, you're just flattening that dog. Like, like how do you decide if the dog is at peace or in a state of learned helplessness? And uh, those are both calm states. Those are both low arousal states, but one is pleasant and the other isn't. So I think that idea of interoception is really important and understanding the difference between the two. And I think a lot of times you see dogs that are uh, drivey, like uh, I think a lot of times they're not, they're, they're in agitation, not excitement. Like it's, it's, mask, it's, it's, it's agitation masquerading as motivation. And uh, I think that's a really important thing that we need to be really aware of because- I So just to stop you for a second, like, so for the listeners of like an example of that, like what would you classify like a drivey dog lunging at a car or lunging at a prey animal or leash reactivity? Like what, what does that so, look like? So leash reactivity would be, the, would be the real common example, right? But like, so like, so what a long time ago, I used to talk, I used to this, use this uh, example all the time of like, you go over somebody's house and their dog is just zipping around the room, jumping from couch <laughs> to couch and yapping and just leaping off of the walls and leaping off people. And people go, oh, he's so happy. And I'm like, <laughs> if that dog was your kid, you'd take him to a doctor. Like that is not, that is not healthy behavior. That is not joy. That is nervous excitement. Um, but the truth is sometimes it is joy. And sometimes there's nervous excitement. And the problem is you can't, you can't just look at the behavior to tell. You kind of have to look at the, the whole condition, right? Uh, mm -hmm. You know, like, like, like sometimes the, the same behavior can look, this, can, can, the exact same behavior can be coming from two different places, right? So I think a lot of times, uh, like, again, I don't want to, I'm not trying to bash any particular program. 
Um, but let's talk about, let, let's, let's use, for example, Nipopo, which again, I have respect for Nipopo, I have respect for Bart. I'm not, I'm not in any way trying to shit on that system. I think it's a phenomenal system with a lot of strengths to it. Um, that said, uh, it is very much based on existential food. The dog must perform to eat. And that's a lot of pressure. Now, ideally, you're doing Nipopo with dogs who are bred to thrive under that kind of pressure, right? The, like you get, you get these mountain Nipopo was developed for sport work, and I'm not saying you can't use it for pet dogs. Please don't misunderstand that. But it was bred for sport work. It was bred for hard-ass dogs who like challenges, who like conflicts, who are going to, they're the human equivalent of somebody who's going to enjoy the sporting event more if they've got a thousand dollars riding on it. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like they want that. They want some skin in the game. They want the challenge. They enjoy that. And that's, then there's a lot of dogs that don't like that. And for some dogs, the pressure of I've got to perform well in order to eat is not joyful. It's stressful. And if you don't understand that about that dog, it might look the same to you. Right. And, and that's that's where I get into the that's that's where I'm talking about. And there's no easy answers there, by the way. I don't I don't have a magic uh, look for, you know, X, Y, Z. And this will tell you, like, you got to know the dog. You got to know the situation. And the problem is, is, is we we see what we want to see. Right. If I design a training program that's supposed to bring the dog into joy. Then I'm going to interpret all arousal as joyful arousal. Right. If if I'm somebody who uh, um, sees arousal as a generally dangerous, generally dangerous condition for dogs to be in, I'm going to interpret most arousal as anxiety or stress. So we have to sort of be able to take away what we expect to see and see what's there. And that's really hard to do. And I don't again, I don't have any, any special techniques or magic for that. Um, but the ability, one thing that's really important is the ability to, to sort of bring the dog into higher drive and then calm them down, like, and, and calm them down in a way where they, where they seem to be content. Um, that's a really important thing. So uh, as a general rule with my, with my family dogs, and that I, I've stopped using the word pet dog a few months ago, because that has a connotation of something that I don't think is really like most people who say they train pet dogs, they'll usually say, I'm just a pet dog trainer, which I think is ridiculous. You're not just anything. You're a pet dog trainer. You're, you... I had a guy tell me a long time ago, my first, my first two years of training, I guess, he said the the highest calling a dog can have is as a pet. And uh, I think that's a hundred percent true. Like it, it's a, it's a fact in the guide dog community. A lot of times after a, a blind person's guide dog passes away, they don't get another dog for years. They don't just replace it because it was their companion. They miss that dog. They don't want another dog. They want their old dog. The relationship was more important than the work dog. So that dog's calling was as a companion, not as like, that's what made it so valuable. So the highest calling a dog can have is as a pet. So when we start talking about pet dog trainers, we're just pet dog trainers. Like we're some sort of uh, less than entities is nonsense. The, the majority of dogs in the world are family dogs. Majority of dogs that, that trainers work with are family dogs. That is in no way, in no way less valuable, less important or less technical 
than sport dog training. And I think it's, it it's really saddens me that, that we've allowed people to convince us that somehow because we're not doing super flashy heels or you know having dogs sliding into a down at a full sprint that we're somehow not as good or not as competent because you know what we do something every day that improves the lives of dogs and it improves the lives of dogs more more than bite work will ever improve the life of the life of a single dog Make- so i'm glad i'm glad you brought that up because you know one of my one of my best achievements with my recent Malinois puppy is I can watch a movie at the end of the day and he just lays down in the living room. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> like, yes. And it's not like he's on a placemat and I'm yelling at him if he doesn't go to it. Like he is at liberty in my living room to go wherever he wants and he just learns to chill. Now I can't make a flashy Instagram reel out of that and put like music over it and people are going to click and share it and it's going to go all over the place. And I think that's why some of the sport trainers, and I mean, I'm guilty of it also, like the videos look awesome. It looks cool. It's flashy, but you know, I, I think being able to, you know, one of, one of the things you talked about is, is teaching the dog self-regulation. Like, I think that's some of the stuff that people overlook and even when people ask me to train their dog very rarely does anyone ever say like I want you to teach my dog to self-regulate his emotions <laughs> you know what I mean like it's like I want my dog to sit and not pull on the leash and I want them to like not pee on the floor like they're not they don't necessarily maybe they might say like I want my dog to be calm but yeah I think what you're talking about is interesting. And then I, I know, I'm sorry, you jumped around a, a little bit I, and I jump around too, but I want to try to tie in like, even like the arousal levels and then not knowing where it's coming from, even with like reward-based training, I've talked about my Labrador many times before I have a yellow lab that I did a lot of like clicker training and shaping and training and, and food. And I got to a point where I felt bad for him and and again i'm not trying to say like reinforcement like i use tons of reinforcement i'm not trying to throw reinforcement training under the bus but he was like almost like a gambling addict and i know mm-hmm. we say things like you want the dog to think you're a slot machine right but like i literally did that and it yeah. wasn't good like i would get up to go to the bathroom and the dog would start offering freaking behaviors, right? And I know people will say, oh, well, you weren't a good reinforcement trainer. And yes, I know it was earlier. There's things I do now, like teaching liberty, but, like teaching my dog when I, we're done. I, I want to also interrupt that and just say, and we've had this discussion, I think, before um, and, and privately too. And I, I've said before is that the regular dog owner is not the dog is not like the dog trainer anyway. Yeah. So when yeah, I hear, sure. when I hear the, when I hear, well, you weren't a good reinforcement trainer, well, guess what? Clients the typical either. client isn't either. And that's where, that's where it gets me. A but little- at the same time, you got to be careful too, because, and then this is, we're going to bounce all over the place. I love this. We're going to all fucking bounce around. Cause I'm so, I wanted to talk about something Chad talked about in the beginning, which was in the beginning, you were very confrontational with the dog and I feel like now things have gotten very confrontational towards the owners right like it's some people go so far to like 
you know where it's like who said like it's like now we're on the 100 percent the dog side and the owners are uneducated and unable and i don't find that to be always the case so so that's a very good point like uh i'm gonna go back to when tv trainers were a big deal like you know the dog whisperer came out and then shortly thereafter it's me or the dog came out and uh and so you had the, the 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 balance trainers had the Caesar model dominance poke the dog, that sort of thing. And then you had Victoria Stillwell, and who uh, was you know basically a force free kind of uh, advocate. Uh, and people would ask me at that time, a lot of times my clients go, "When are you going to get a TV show? When are you going to get a TV show?" And my answer would be never. And they'd say, and they'd say, why? I said, because television requires drama, and drama requires conflict, and good dog training shouldn't be about conflict. And if you watch the way those shows, those two shows work, as comparison, Caesar was very, very confrontational with dogs, and Stillwell was very confrontational with the owners. Mm. So very nice to the dogs, very confrontational to the owners. Caesar was very confrontational with dogs, very nice to the owners. But they had to have drama. Like that's how you get people to watch. Nobody's going to watch. A, a really good like dog trainers watch really good dog training but the general public doesn't want to watch a 20 minute video of some guy you know shaping a down like <laughs> nobody's interested in that um so uh i think that's a very good point and and i i think you're right so there's a couple of things that came up in that conversation number one to your point Vinny, yes shaping is one of the easy bad shaping is one of the easiest ways to really screw a dog up. Like the, the very worst dog training presentation I think I ever went to, I literally walked out of was the shaping demonstration. And uh, the, the, the girl doing the shaping was, was good at it. Apparently uh, maybe it was a bad day for her. Maybe the dog was a little off. Maybe it was the pressure of having a bunch of professional trainers watch her. I had the feeling that the demo that she was doing was sort of, last minute like someone goes oh you're gonna go up and you're gonna do the shaping demo i kind of had that feeling and maybe she was a bit overwhelmed but it soured me on shaping for a long time because the dog was so stressed out it was so obviously in crisis and begging for help okay i'm trying to get it can you give me a hint i mean she wasn't helping the dog and like i'm all for letting dogs struggle through solving a puzzle as long as they're into the struggle yeah right but when they go hey i need some help here i'm gonna go yeah let's give you a clue let's build a clue like 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 i think that's maybe the key to really doing good work with reinforcement is knowing when to clue the dog in and when to let them work it out on their own uh so to your point yes that's one way that you can really screw a dog up uh now into the other point uh i'm having a conversation right now on facebook with a guy um I don't know if you saw the Jack Russell video that I put up. Uh, I did, yes. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, there, there's somebody who's there's a trainer in there, and I'm not gonna I'm not gonna throw the guy under the bus. Uh, I've met the guy before. He came to one of my workshops. Um, he's a decent guy, like he's a good trainer, um, but he's clearly stressed out by the level of arousal shown in that video by those dogs, and I am not now. When I first saw the video, so to describe the video, it's it's like five Jack Russell Terriers wearing pink winter coats attacking attacking our branch there's snow on the ground and they're just and they're just hanging there's like four of them hanging and one will drop off and then we'll jump on it's but when i first ran across that video 
my thought was very much like this guy's is, oh, this is a disaster waiting to happen. One of these dogs is going to redirect here in a second or two. But after I watched the video, I realized that number one, these dogs have done this before. They're pros at this. And number two, they're actually, you can see them making accommodations for one another. Um, and that's, that's, that's the kind of vision you only get if you're working with dogs in, 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 in that sort of drive. If you're working with dogs in competitive drive, uh, whether that be you're doing bite sports or you're doing, you know, vigorous tug or spring pole work, you know, you recognize the sound of, of a dog or the sight of a dog having a good time and making accommodations for their playmates. Um, and you recognize the sound of that not happening and the look of that not happening. You can look, you can see when 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 they're in danger of shifting and, and nowhere in that video does it look like they're in danger of shifting. These dogs are cooperating to bring down that branch. They are dogs are cooperative hunters. Jack Russell Terriers often, you know, hunt in groups, like when they're when they're ratting, like they let a bunch of them loose into the barn and you know, uh, uh, you see that, like, uh, at least they used to, I don't know if anybody rats with Jack Russell's now, but in the old, the old historic history, like that's what they would do. They'd send three or four of them into the barn and, you know, they keep, they, they kill as many rats as they could. Um, I don't have a concern with it, but it's, it's obvious that the guy who's commenting doesn't work with dogs in that drive. And as a matter of fact, he kept saying that he didn't think that the average dog owner could handle that. And I do have a problem with the, the with the phrase "average dog owner" because, like, is it, what's the average dog owner? Like, what is that? Like, is that your eighty-year-old uh, woman who's got a ninety-pound lab who's dragging her down the street, or is that your uh, your twenty-two-year-old uh, truck driver who's got you know? A Doberman Pinscher that he wants, you know, what I'm saying like, 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 what's the average dog owner? Like, well, and the thing, the thing too that I noticed too is if one, if you're listening to this podcast, two, you're arguing with trainers on social media, or three, you have an account that's dedicated to your dog. Like, you're not an average. You know what I mean? Like, a lot of times it's these dog owners that like their Instagram account is their dog's name, and they're learning a ton about dog behavior. And they're literally having like arguments with other dog trainers on social media. Like that's not like to me, you're already not an average dog, dog but, owner. You know what I mean? So, but, but here's the thing, like my job is to make sure when I'm done with you as a client, you're not an average dog owner. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I'm an, exactly. I'm an educator, right. Uh -huh. Which goes back to, goes back to the point that was made is, is we don't have to be hard on the dogs or the people. We're their coaches. Like, like I tell yeah. people all the time, I'm not here to judge. I'm here to nudge. Right? You get it wrong. I'm gonna remind you it's wrong, but I'm not gonna do it in a way that makes you feel shitty about yourself. Yeah. You know, like, like I don't have to bully you. Like, there is no part. Like Buck Brandman is a horse trainer. There's a great movie, a documentary about him, about him called Buck. And one of the lines that he says in that movie is, "No one has to lose for me to win." And I'll, I'll go a step further and say, if somebody loses, I didn't win. If anybody loses, we all do. I want the owner to win. I want the dog to win. I want myself to win. If we all win, like it's, it's, it's all or none. Right. And, and so I don't need anybody to feel like shit. I don't need anybody to feel guilty. I don't want the dogs to feel like shit. I don't want the owners to feel like shit. I want to help them with their relationship. Like, like you wouldn't go to a therapist that yelled at you. Hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like, 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 you know, and that's what we are. We're family counselors for people and their dogs. 
and we're giving them all skills to navigate. So like, I don't want, like the worst thing that somebody could say after some, about one of my clients after they're done is, oh, they're an average dog owner. No, they gotta be better than average because average didn't work. That's why they called me. You know, like, like we have to, like, we're educators. Like, I, I just, I just, you know, like if, if you spend a bunch of money, if you've been golfing your whole life and you spend a bunch of money on, you know, lessons with a golf pro and you're still average when you're done, like if you're not breaking in the, that higher end of that median, then, you know, maybe your golf pro didn't really do a good job or maybe you didn't, you know, maybe, you know what I'm saying? Like I, I, that's an overly simplistic thing. I don't want the golf pros to yell at me or the golfers to yell at me. I know golf is an extremely hard sport to master, but I'm just saying that that people are hiring you to make them better. Like nobody's hiring you to stay the same. And and so this is the point that I got into, you know, uh, the average person can't handle a dog in that drive. That's true. They don't have the skills, you know, but I'm in the business of giving them the skills they need that their dog can express himself in the most. I want, you know, Pat Stewart says he wants uh, to, he wants to make the best, best possible version of that dog. And uh, I, I agree with that, but I, I think the element that we want to add to that is I want to make the best possible version of that dog in that particular situation. And partly that means making the situation better. And that means getting the owners, the skills they have, the, the understanding of the skills they need to, work with that dog in a way that fulfills that dog like i don't like the idea of suppressing a dog because the owner doesn't have skills like i think you know we we can elevate them it's not that hard to do guys the, the average person to be frank doesn't know shit about what they're doing and they still mostly manage to by the way they still man, mostly manage to get it okay like if you if if everybody who owned a dog called a dog trainer none of us would have time to argue on social media None of us would have time. Our phones would be ringing off the hook. Like you just look at the average suburban neighborhood. Figure out how many dogs are in that neighborhood and how many trainers you have within 10 miles of that. I guarantee you every single one of those trainers would be swamped with work if they all needed help. But they don't. Because most people with their average knowledge, with their very limited knowledge, do okay. Because dogs are exceptionally good at adapting. So when somebody picks up the phone to call us, it's usually because they're in trouble. You know, Vinny, you made a comment about people call you up and say they want their dog to sit. I never get that call. I, I, 30 years, no one has ever said, you know what? My problem is my dog <laughs> the first time I say yeah. it. You know what I'm saying? Like, like never. Like, the, the, the call I get is, is uh, they all are variations. The thing is, my dog is stressing me the hell out. Yeah. I'm worried about my dog running away. I'm worried about my dog embarrassing me when I take him. I'm worried about my dog knocking my kid down or knocking my mom down. I'm worried about my dog eating something he doesn't eat like like it's almost always they're worried that the dog's behavior is going to make life unbearable for them and uh i've never never once never once has somebody said my big problem is my dog doesn't sit fast enough well one time let me say one time are uh, you lied see you didn't get the call no, I, I mean, yeah, no I'm kidding. but that was when, <laughs> that was when a professional trainer called me for the wasn't for the me it wasn't me no, it was for their competitive. <laughs> it's a long time ago. It was for their competitive obedience dog. They're like going, he's not doing. And it wasn't even sit, but it was like there was something I don't remember. I think it was the Stanford exam they were trying to get help with, but they were a professional trainer who was trying to clean up something. It doesn't happen. Like people just like like George Big George says, they just don't want their friend to be an asshole. So to so to tie that all in. 
you you had a quote you said how you live with your dog will have a more lasting effect on behavior than what um what happens in training and you also had a little venn diagram of behavior modification and obedience and to your point about sit i i think you know i don't want to speak for for people but i think if if an, an average person closed their eyes and thought about dog training they are thinking more likely about obedience and then to my point with like just teaching my dog to be calm um, you know, people go to puppy classes and they learn sit and down and go to your place and how to walk by your side. They're not learning behavior mod, right? Um, so what, like, what advice, like, what do you have to say about that in terms of when, when you're trying to explain to someone that maybe what they don't need is obedience, they need more behavior mod, or do you still sprinkle in the obedience? Um, are they related? Obviously, I know you're kind of, you're, you do see that they both mesh together. So how much obedience, how much behavior mod, how much should we begin allocating to each one? Um, and then do you ever get pushback? Because, you know, the thing that I do notice is especially like with puppies or like new dogs, like, people do want to have those little, you know, the little games to play. They want to, they want to teach their dog to sit, you know, they want, they want to see, you know, they want to see their dog performing. So, Cause who doesn't like, even I still get excited when, like when I got a puppy and he started doing his sits and downs and stands, like it, it's nice to see, but then we also know that that's just scratching the surface. Okay. So this is a really good question. And uh, so let's start with the fundamental thing that I think almost there's, you know, the old saying, the only thing two trainers can agree on is what the third trainer is doing wrong. Like there's that's three that's, of us here right now. So yeah, let's do it. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's a good joke, but it's actually not true. There are a few things that I think almost every professional trainer can agree on. Maybe not all of them, but first one is dogs are easy. People are hard. I think that's a pretty common one. But the other one is you're always teaching whether you intend to or not. Every interaction, the dog is learning. Mm-hmm. Right. And so the reason why dog trainers tend to not have dogs with behavior problems is they think like trainers. Like they understand how this choice that they're making now is going to affect down the line. And where did we get that knowledge? Through teaching dogs how to do things. Right. And so this is the important thing. Um, One of my goals when I have any client is I got to install a little bit of dog trainer brain in them. Right. And obedience is great for that. It gives them clear goals. It gives that they, they can practice their timing in a low stakes environment. They can practice inhibiting behaviors with a variety of strategies in a low stakes environment where the only thing that happens if the dog gets off the place board is you got to put him back. He's not going to, it's not like running into the street and getting hit by a car or picking up a cigarette button, eating it or whatever. So there's, there's margin for error. It's a safe place to learn. It's like doing the simulator in driver's ed before you have to get out on the road or or on the pilot or the, the the airline simulators or whatever, right? It's a place where where the dog and owner can practice these skills that they're going to need to communicate and cooperate. So there is there is a tremendous benefit in teaching owners how to teach their dogs. And the easiest way to do that is obedience, because again, you have a measurable standard. You can say, I said sit, the dog said or no. Like if you're trying to teach somebody how to do like say condition relaxation, for example. Is the dog getting easier? That's a fairly subjective thing. Like objectively, there's a truth. Like, don't get me wrong. Like there's an objective truth. That dog's heart rate is going up or down. That dog's blood pressure is going up or up or down. That pupil dilation is changing. But we don't have the equipment to measure that in the training room. So we're all making subjective. It looks calmer to me. Like 
and we can fool ourselves, right? We can't fool ourselves. Does the dog stay on the place board? Did the dog sit? Did the dog lie down? Did the dog is the dog healing that? There's a little room on that, depending on how, to, how precise you want your heel to be. Like, is the dog in the bubble or not? But those are measurable standards. So getting people to teach their dogs how to do these things helps them understand how to think like a trainer. Now, from the dog's perspective, I've said this a million times, obedience does a couple of things for dogs. First off, obedience is impulse control. It's resisting temptation. If I have a dog in a sit and I'm rolling a ball around or squeaking a toy or whatever, and he doesn't move, that is impulse control. He's resisting temptation. That is a skill. It's the same skill he needs to not chase a squirrel, the same skill he needs to not uh, bark at grandma, the same skill he needs to not, you know, eat your couch. It's to resist temptation. Most dogs without training, most dogs, they have an impulse and that impulse translates directly to action. There is no moment of reflection to go, hmm, is this the smart play right now? They see an opportunity and they take it. In the wild, they learn. In the wild, they learn. Like if you bring a dog out into a field, never been out in a field before, never had any training, and you let him go, and he sees a rabbit 50 yards away, he goes, oh, shit, I'm going to get that rabbit. And he charges across the field. Guess what? That rabbit's going to get away 100% of the time. Guaranteed he's never going to catch that rabbit because he's dumb. He's, he's tipping his hand. The predator is not supposed to tell the prey he's on his way, but he's big, he's clumsy, he's loud. He's got no sense of, of stealth. He's just going to chase it away. Consequence. I failed. Next time, he's going to be smarter. Next time, he's going to practice some impulse control. It might take 10 times. I don't know. But sooner or later, he's going to realize that running and barking at that thing full bore is not working. Right? And eventually, he'll learn to move move in quietly, downwind, and how fast he has to, how close he has to get before he springs. Like he, Nature will teach him that. But dogs and households don't have those sorts of those sorts of obstacles. So we create scenarios in obedience where they get to practice impulse control because a, a, a dog who is, who's, whose environment has basically been nerfed to protect them from getting in trouble, they're on leashes all the time. We put all the stuff they can get in trouble, they can hurt themselves with away. We're always watching them because we love our dogs. We don't want them to get hurt. So they don't have to learn impulse control because we've nerfed their environment to protect them, which is a good idea. I'm not saying we shouldn't do that. But when we do that, we rob them of that ability to learn how to regulate themselves. And obedience is a really good way while keeping the environment really safe and secure for them to practice that and develop those skills. And uh, so that's one thing that obedience gives, us, obedience gives us. Another thing it gives us is the ability to emotionally downshift. Because the thing is, is if I have a dog to stay long enough and he's relying on willpower alone, he's going to fail on a long enough timeline because willpower is a finite resource. He will run out of that and he will no longer have the energy necessary to override the impulse. Also, when you're at a state of high arousal, the, the architecture in your brain that you need to resist temptation gets less oxygen, less blood flow. So it actually is harder to control yourself when you're excited than when you're not. It's not just a matter of, I had a weak moment. Literally, at a certain point, the ability to self-regulate goes offline. At a certain level of arousal, you don't have that skill anymore. It's gone. It's just like, this is just biology. Like, it's not, it's not up to you. You know, <laughs> like at a certain point, you don't have any choice. So the dog who's at high arousal, is like, I'm not going to go. 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 Eventually, he's going to go every time. 
but you'll see it when you're practicing longer stays with a dog, you just see them, they're like tense, tense, tense. And sometimes it's go, just take a deep breath and you can see them relax and they go, oh, okay, I got it. And they just learned to downshift because it was necessary to, to, to solve the puzzle. Another example, and I used it again, back when I was a dumbass, I'm probably still a dumbass, but in different ways. But back when I was a bigger dumbass, I'd have a dog in a heel and I'd have a distraction over on my left side. And that dog would go, you know what? I'm going to cross over on my right side. I would, like an idiot, I correct that dog. No, I said heel. No, you get over here. I assume, I interpret that as a dog trying to get away with something because of that, that, that adversarial mindset that I had sort of uh, drilled into me. And no, that's the dog going, listen, I'm trying, but that's too much. I need some distance between me and that thing because the close, like if you think about attraction like magnets, the closer you get two magnets to each other, the the stronger the force is, the closer the dog is to that distraction, the stronger the connection is. So if, if that dog is going, you know what, I want to do this right, but I can't be this close. And he comes, I'm going to like, yeah, good boy. You regulated. You regulated the situation on your own. You made a good choice. That's like an alcoholic who takes a different route home so he doesn't have to drive by his favorite bar. That's him trying to get it right. He's not being a, a, a dick. I'm the dick for making him try and do it my way. If now, what if what if his his reaction was maladaptive? Like, say, instead of him crossing out to your right side, he bites you in the leg. Like, then are you just taking the pressure off by? I know I'm messing up your example. Like, I understand what you're saying. I'm saying, like, what if the dog's choice is not beneficial? Like, just switching aside. Well, so so that like if that happens, that's my fault. First off, like yeah, if, yeah, like I misread the situation. Mm-hmm. And I'm I'm not gonna I'm probably not going. Let's say number one, there's a pretty good chance I'm gonna be able to avoid that bite. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I was just for the sake of an example because yeah. I know what you're talking about is when you're almost like prioritizing obedience over the feelings of that dog, and then that's where but, like you know knowing your but, dog's emotional state is very important. Well, so, so the problem there is that dog did not that dog didn't do something to downshift that dog did something to uh express his frustration mm-hmm, now mm-hmm. my fault for not seeing the frustration how i would respond to that dog would depend largely on what exactly was going on mm-hmm. like uh, uh i i often don't react to bites or bite attempts except say hey knock it off like and even <laughs> even if they even if they clip me i often don't make a big deal of it um uh because I don't think it helps. Yeah. Like, I, I don't think it helps. Like, if the dog likes me and the dog trusts me and I push them in that situation where they feel it's necessary to bite, it doesn't convince them I'm, I'm safer if I whoop their ass. You know what yeah, I'm definitely like, not. Like, yeah, definitely like, not. <laughs> like, it doesn't. So, so I want to go, I want to downplay the emotional significance of that usually. Uh, um, which is maybe the most controversial thing I've said today. Um, I remember I, I, I was, I, I did a, I was doing a, a program with a dog who was a resource guarder and I had forgotten he was a resource guarder because we didn't come along really nicely. And I'd forgotten that he did this, but, um, I was letting him eat out of my hand, like re- as a reward. Um, and I was petting him and he came up the leash at me. And at first I thought I heard his ear. Like the first time we did, it, I was like, oh, I, I hurt your ear. I'm sorry. And so I just tried again. He came up the leash on me again the second time. Now, he did not put teeth on me. It was mostly show. 
but then it's like, hey, knock it off. And I start, then I then I I remembered uh maybe after I talked to the owner, it might not have been until the next yeah, it was it was like that night. I said he went after me. He goes, Oh yeah, that's why he's here. And I was oh shit, I forgot. So, <laughs> so so but I spent the next 10 minutes getting working through that, and I never ever had a consequence for him doing that besides taking the food away, giving him a break, and coming back to it. And I sent that video to a couple of people. Um, and uh, one of them was Glenn Cook from Canine Paradigm. And uh, uh, and Glenn's a really good guy. And uh, I miss that dude. I need to reach out to him. But uh, he's a really good guy. And uh, his response was something like, nice work. I don't think I would have been as patient. Um, and, and, and like that was the first time I kind of went that, oh, I, I do things a little differently. Like I just assumed that all the trainers I respected would have seen it the same way. And that's not, again, Glenn's a great guy. He's an amazing trainer. Like, like I love that dude to death. I'm not trying to bag on him. Um, there's, there's a lot of variation in our industry and how we do things. And, and I, I certainly don't think that he would have been in the wrong to do that. Um, but for me, for me, uh, because the dog didn't have any intent, I felt safe enough to allow him to make mistakes and work through that. And I think that's the important thing. Like, like, like there is a, when it comes to aggression towards the handler, you always have to balance your safety with the dog's need. You know what I'm saying? Like, like with a real little dog, I, I've done this before with a real dog. I'll let him go to town. Like literally put on some rubber gloves and you're all good. I don't even bother. Like <laughs> I, I had a little terrier. I'm trying to give him a nail trim. He's like, yeah, yeah. I'm like, fine, bite my hand. He's like, ah, 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 ah. And when he's done, I'm like, okay, I go back to trimming his nails. Like extinction is a really powerful tool. Like, like, and I'm not right by the way to your listeners, to anybody listening. I'm not recommending anybody else do this dumb shit. Like this is stupid. It's dangerous. And no one should ever do what I'm describing here, but I do it all the time. Not all the time, but I do it enough. Like, the message is I'm not afraid of your teeth. You got to come up with a different strategy. That's not going to stop me. And that is way more powerful. It's way more powerful to say, you can't stop me with your teeth. It's, they give up on that a lot faster than if I prove to them they're right by, by dropping the hammer when they do that. If I just go, yeah, you got teeth. So what? Now what? We're still trimming your nails. And, uh, and we I got won't some do listeners with German Shepherds right now that are yeah, like, was, I don't know I how do we're going to do this. Like, I do <laughs> Not sure this is the best protocol. Like, like this, is what I, this is what I was saying. Like, like you got to balance your safety versus the dog's safety. Like for a long time, I wouldn't use muzzles with a dog because it was a, a macho thing. It was a, it was a, you know, uh, somebody had once said to me, if you can't handle a dog without a muzzle, you shouldn't be handling them with a muzzle. Like, it's kind of like this, this idea that you have to be like the, like super good and super swift and super everything you got to be an amazing trainer and i i just have i still have a bit of that in me i still have a a, a an unhealthy bias against muzzles and uh i fortunately i'm smart enough to know it's an unhealthy bias but it's the first it's still there admitting. it's still there but <laughs> I will tell you, I had this had this pit bull I was training a few years ago, like six or seven years ago. And I remember like the second lesson, I gave him a little bit of leash correction. It wasn't that bad, but I saw the change. He looked at me, he's like, motherfucker. 
And I said, this dog's targeting me now. And I noticed he kept trying to sneak behind me. Hmm. Like he'd lag a little bit when we did a, did about turn on the heel to try and fall in a little behind me. He was trying to get out of my line of sight so he could come at me. And it was very, I was, I, I was very aware of it and it made training him really stressful. So eventually I had the owner muzzle condition. We brought him on a, a in on a, a, a clear Jafco muzzle, which is if you, if, like I use, when I use muzzles now, I tend to use the Baskerville Ultra. But if I think a dog is really serious, I'm going to go with a Jafco every time. Uh, but uh, so we put him on a Jafco muzzle and uh, boy, the training got so much easier because what was happening was I was getting cut a little punchy, right? Like if I thought he was about to do something, I would extend my leash so he couldn't get to me. I'm not enjoying the session. He's not enjoying the session. Once we got that muzzle on him, we could work. And by the way, I just didn't experiment. I, I let him come at me and muzzle punch me to see how serious it was. 30 seconds nonstop with the muzzle trying to get to my leg. Um, again, I wouldn't have done that if it had been Baskerville, but for the Jafco, I knew, I felt safe enough. Um, and he was just jamming into me and jamming into me. Like he, he this dog would have, would have tried to take me out if he had the chance. Um, uh, he was, he, he didn't feel like that correction was justified and he was going to, he was going to make the thing is he got better with everybody else in the world. Like by the time we were done with them, they could have guests over to their house and he was fine. No problem. But still with me, the only time that I felt safe with that dog with unmuzzled was if I had a tug toy in my hand. Cause he would play tug with me, but he hated me in all other circumstances. So, but the point I'm getting at was, do you think that was because of that one correction? And after that, he just kind of had it out for you. Yeah, I feel like I, I feel like uh, I don't want to anthropomorphize it too much, but I feel like at that point in time, he felt offended mm -hmm. by the way I handled him. He didn't feel safe with me, and I think that feeling persists. Like so, uh, sometimes when I come when I go into work, my memory is really bad, guys. Like, and I'm getting older; it's getting worse. And uh, so, uh, just to set the stage, and I've never been great with names. Um, and so like a lot of times I'll come into work and I'll look at my schedule for the day and I'll see a dog's name. I won't remember the dog at all. I can't tell you what breed it is. I can't tell you what their owner looks like, but I either have a good feeling or a bad feeling. In other words, I go, Oh, that dog, mm -hmm. I can't picture him, but I feel good. I'm like, this is going to be fun. Or I go, ah, oh, this is a tough one. I don't have the energy for this dog today, or I got to conserve my energy for this dog today. I can't tell you anything about it, but I have this immediate visceral reaction to that dog. And I think it's more like that. Like I offended him. I, 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 I broke trust and he was not able to get over it. I was always a little bit of a threat from that point forward. Whether he had it in for me or not, that's a little bit of a, like uh, that's staring into the black box a little bit deeper than I can. But what I do know is that he never fully trusted me after that. And uh, he had, he, his default reaction to not trusting somebody is to make them go away with the threat of violence or the act of violence. And so while I was successful at helping him solve his problem with other people, I never could get him completely over that with me. Um, uh, like, don't get me wrong. We play tug and he was great. And if I had a tug in my hand, he was my best friend but as soon as that tug well, went away that brings it up that kind of i feel like also brings it back to what you said earlier with that uh when the dog's in that arousal state mm -hmm. and they may view things a little different or be in a different state of mind to process certain things right like that kind of makes me just think of what you were saying before when you say that 
that's a really good point. Like I, I all these years, I've never thought about that, but yes, that's probably exactly. <laughs> well, I'm going to tell you, you know, because as you were saying what you said before about arousal, it was, it was making me just think about either, you know, um, and people distinguish a uh, drive and arousal as, as different things. Um, but for I'm going to go for like the sake of what you were saying earlier, it was just made me think of my own dog where, if I'm sitting in the living room on the couch with him and fireworks go off, even if it's in the distance, he will start shaking. But if we're outside in my yard doing agility, fireworks could go off above my house and he doesn't care. Mm-hmm. You yeah. know, and he's in that different state of mm-hmm. mind. You know, he's in that driven, like working state at that time mm-hmm. that he is willing to work through that. And it's interesting because then we'll be finished and go inside and fireworks could continue going off for the rest of the night. And he's generally okay. Mm -hmm. But if it was the opposite where he was inside first, totally different, totally. Yeah. That's, that's, that's like, yeah. Cause when the it's, and it's not even just, it's not even just the arousal either like that's a big part of it but it's also the fact that he's doing something joyful mm-hmm. right uh it's like uh if you're watching but that's sport- also hard i don't mean to interrupt you but that's also hard because like i think of like there are some dogs who they find things joyful but it's things get so stressful or scary for them that it doesn't matter mm-hmm. you know and so i wonder i wonder if i don't know i wonder like is it more than just that is there is there something deeper than just that joy? So like you probably, like I said, that arousal level is, is part of it, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, but so like uh, a couple of things. One thing is that when we feel a threat response, whatever we, whatever that is, when, when any mammal registers a threat response, it makes them immediately pessimistic. They begin looking for more threats and less opportunities. Like they, they, they become unable to see opportunities because everything is a potential threat. When a being is in a driven state, when they are in that, what Pangsa would call the seeking system, uh, they're looking for opportunities, not threats, right? So if you think about curiosity and fear work opposite each other, the more curious we are, the less fearful we are, the more fearful we are, the less curious we are, right? That's the easy way to frame it that I, I use that with my clients a lot. So if the dog is trying to solve puzzles, he's less likely to register things as a, th- as a threat. He's more likely to look at them with curiosity as maybe their information help him solve the, the situation. That's part of it. The other part of it is, is that I, I talk about something I, I call motivational math sometimes, which is basically, it's a real, it's, it's a real simple analogy, but it really helps clarify things. And, and I'm going to kind of apply it to this question, to this hypothetical. Um, uh, every being on the planet is always going to choose the path they believe will be most rewarding. Right. Um, and so our job as trainers is to convince the dog that the path we want them to take also happens to be the most rewarding. And somehow I want to be real clear about this. The dog doesn't need to know it's what we want. The dog needs to know it's what he wants. When we get caught up on this idea of the dog should do it because I want him to, I don't give a shit. I want to convince the dog that what, what, like, I want to set up situations so what the dog wants just also happens to give me what I, what I want, what I want. If the dog gets does what he does to get what he wants, that also is happening to be what I want. He doesn't need to know that part, right? But uh, 
So what we do is we adjust expectations of reward events, right? We make things more rewarding or less rewarding. And there's lots of ways we can do that. You know, the most simplest form reinforcement makes it more rewarding, punishment makes it less rewarding, but it gets way more complicated than that. I don't want to, I can't do it justice like uh, here. But that idea gets me into thinking about whether I'm adding or removing reward from the dog's life right like uh in the situation uh a dog who is really doing something they're joyful about say he's at a hundred joy points when he's doing agility right now the fireworks come in and that's negative 25 points he's still at 75 joy points he's still more joyful right but let's say sitting on your couch is only 20 joy points and then the fireworks come now that's negative 25 that's minus 25 joy points now he's at negative five Right. So how much so so the 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 even if the fear factor of the fireworks doesn't change, but it does. I believe it does based on what we talked about before already, right? But even if it doesn't change, where he's starting affects how deeply that's gonna affect him. Does that make sense? So um having him doing and the other thing is when you're task oriented, you tend to get tunnel vision. He may not even notice the fireworks because he's focused on his task. Like, so that's another part of it was he may not, and that goes back to the arousal question. You know, he's more aroused. So it's it's a pretty complicated thing. And we can like, like it's it, I don't know that we could dissect it down into into the exact exact pieces, but I think that's all really important. Overall, I think you're on the right track though. I think uh he uh uh it, the arousal and the joy of the behavior help him ignore the stress of the fireworks um for sure um when he's just when he's just sitting on the couch with you there's less to there's less there's less ways for him to there's less things for him to focus on besides that right it's like if you're trying to take a nap in a room and somebody comes in opens a desk drawer pulls out a piece of paper writes down a phone number with a pencil you're going to hear everything right but if you're watching your favorite sporting event or your favorite movie it's at the climax and it's something that might, might have to say your name three or four times before you notice <laughs> right and, and that's a big part of it like arousal affects again high arousal creates tunnel vision relaxation tends to open up the senses and let us see and feel more which isn't always a good thing well yeah i was gonna i was gonna i'm sorry anthony i know it was your dog so no, no, it was not on that. Actually, I was just thinking about. Um, I was just thinking about the the original question that this whole conversation started with. Um, that uh, Chad had um, something about not changing, um, and so I was just thinking about uh, how you were saying you didn't, you hadn't thought of the the pity that you were working with, um, and that that like play and arousal state. So I was wondering, like thinking about that now, do you think that there's something that sticks out to you that you might have done differently to try and see if you could become friends or win him over a little bit? Um, now looking back at the fact that like, was is there a way you could have maybe utilized play or tug in, differently for for that case? And I don't know the case, so but I'm just like, just kind of curious um i'd have to think about that to be honest with you like that's not something yeah. i can give an easy answer to so the short yeah. answer is yes most assuredly with that if that if that observation is true and i tend to think it was like 
you know, the first thing is you guys sort of test to see if that observation is true. And I'm yeah. not even sure how I would do that. That's the first yeah. step. I'm not sure how to use that <laughs> test yeah. in a safe way. But yep. that would be the first step is to find out if that observation is true. Like I said, I'm inclined to believe it's true. It makes sense. It fits It fits in with, it, it's it's the piece of the puzzle that was missing. And now it was like, when you said it, I was like, oh, that fits. That, mm. that, that, that illuminates the whole thing. So it's probably yeah. correct. And then the next thing is how do I arrange a way to not only safely test, but safely practice it. And that's where I, I would. That's yeah, it's not one of those would, things where you have to sit there and really ponder and think about. <laughs> yeah. And so, so the question is, would it change the way I work with them? Absolutely. Would it make a difference? Absolutely. How? Can't say just yet. It would, it would, I'm going to be thinking about that for a few days. And so <laughs> to, to tie in, to tie in with that, because we, we were bringing up like joy and like Anthony was saying, if he's playing in the yard, then the dog doesn't notice something. But this brings me back to what we were talking about in the very beginning, which is like, it's hard to tell like what the dog is feeling and are they feeling this way because of joy? So the example I could think of is I have this paradoxical issue of, if I have a stomach ache, I don't want to eat bland food, but then I wind up eating like garbage food that is actually way worse for me. It's going to make my stomach ache worse than it was, but it's like rooted in this like addiction to sweets and garbage food. Right. And it's like, with that pity, is it that he was like enjoying the tug session with you? Or is it like, I don't want to say that he's like addicted, but like, because sometimes drives with dogs, it almost seems like they're not just playing tug because they, they want to, like, it's like they, it's almost like they need to. That's a, and that's then, a... and then is it like, now he's like, I'm putting up with this fucking guy that I'd rather kill because I need to do this thing even more. You know what I mean? Um. well, what I would say is that like, that's a good observation and that can happen. Like I, my Malinois, um, I used to say she would she would chase the ball till she had a heart attack if I let her. Like 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 she wouldn't she she would like she would be crawling if she her muscles were too weak to stand because she was compelled to chase a ball. And and how much of that is joy and how much of that is obsession is that's again that's that's an, that's a really good example actually. But I will say this: this dog seemed to enjoy playing tug when this dog was at the training center. He enjoyed playing tug with me more than his owner. Like if we both held tugs, he would come to me. So I feel like he actually enjoyed it with me because I put on a good game. Mm -hmm. Like I put on a good game and it was the only time I wasn't a little bit wary. And, that, and you know, guys, like the truth is there is a part of me that suspects that he was way more comfortable with me than I was with him. Mm. That I never quite shook the impression mm -hmm. that he was waiting for a chance to murder me. Like, mm -hmm. uh, and maybe that was never true. Maybe I, maybe my judgment was forever flawed from that because that can happen for sure. Um, and and I'm certainly not above that. Uh, and I always knew that. Like e even when I was telling you guys the story in my head, I'm going, you know, there's a chance that maybe I misread that. Um, but I don't think I did. Like obviously, if I thought that, I would have done something differently at the time. But but I I, I would be kind of. I'd be remiss if I didn't acknowledge that maybe, you know, I remember I got in an argument on the old IACP email list back before they had Facebook <laughs> with somebody. <laughs> and uh, 
one of my mentors, Dick Russell, like, and this was before he was my, my mentor, um, I think. But I was talking about something and, and a bunch of people were, were basically challenging my read on the dog that they'd never seen before. And I remember Dick Russell jumped in and he said, uh, Chad is the professional with boots on the ground and that makes him right and all the rest of you wrong. And I think that's a real important thing that, that I try not to dispute other trainers view of what they would, they describe. I try to assume that they know what they're talking about. Um, but I also think that in our industry, it's kind of, it can be deadly for us to assume we know what we're talking about. Right. Like, like uh, I don't, want to ever get so committed to my read of a dog that I don't entertain the idea that I might be wrong. Um, because some of the worst mistakes I've ever made have been from me ignoring signs that I was wrong because I was so damn confident that I knew what the hell I was talking about. And I think so it's you're really saying my self-doubt is actually a pro instead of a con? Well, I mean, <laughs> self-doubt... Anthony's shaking his head. Self-doubt is not... like like entertaining a realistic degree of humility yes yes it's yes. probably what I'm i was being about. comical i was making yeah. anthony roll okay. his eyes over there okay. so like <laughs> but i think it's important for anybody listening like like self-doubt is deadly but so is hubris yes like, like you can make the mistake of being too confident and you can make the mistake of not believing in yourself enough and the the the, the, the trick is figure out where that line is for that <laughs> dog that situation i'm doubtful you know, and, and that's, and that's the, that's the, the hard thing because, you know, like, like we've all met people who were so absolutely confident that they couldn't, they couldn't see the hole in their own shit. And uh, <laughs> his name's Vinny Viola. <laughs> and, and, and we've also seen people that were, that, that, that whose ability was incredibly limited by their inability to commit because they, couldn't believe in themselves you know like like there's an old somebody told me one time you know old, an old uh, not an old a guy who eventually became a jiu-jitsu world champion told me something one time and i don't know where he got it from it was probably a quote he got from somewhere but he didn't tell me but he said you will never exceed your own expectations of yourself hmm. like if you start to exceed what you think you're capable of you will sabotage yourself and i think that's 100 percent true like uh but at the same time, that doesn't mean you can live up to all the expectations you have of yourself. <laughs> like, like, like there's the Henry Ford quote that I love is uh, whether you think you can or you think you can't, you're probably right. Um, so much of so much of this. And this is an industry like we all struggle with imposter syndrome up to a certain point in our in our in, in our development. Like, um, because, I mean, if you look, think about it, most of us are largely self-taught. You know, even if you go to you, you, you go to a Nipopo school or you go to Ivan's course, you pass or you go to, you know, uh, Star Mark and you pass or National Canine and you get your certificates and whatever. And, and, you know, whatever school you go to and whatever mentors you have every day, we're making shit up every day. We're going, hmm, let me see what this works. Let's see how this works. We're trying this. We're trying that. And there's this idea that, you know, this is this isn't real dog training. It's just something I made up. But everything you do was just something somebody made up. Like Pavlov's experiment with the bell, bell was just something he made up. 
right? Like he didn't get that from a book. You know, I was I was having a conversation with somebody uh, uh, at the time. It was P, uh, it was uh, well, what was it? It's IGP now. It was Schutzen. Then it was uh, what was it before it became IGP? Do anybody remember? I, is it IPO or no? Yeah, or yeah, it was IP. It was IPO. Yeah, it was a time it was still IPO. And I had been, I, it was shortly after I got back from Australia, I was talking about where I'd been exposed to PSA and I was talking about PSA and he's like, that's just some things some guys made up. <laughs> like, what do you think IPO is? Do you think like that was handed down on golden tablets from the sky? Like somebody made that shit up too. That like, one came from a up. burning bush. You know, like, like, like everything is something somebody made up, you know? And, and, and that's really an important distinction. Like, like just cause you made it up doesn't mean it's not as valuable. It just means it hasn't been tested as long. It hasn't been confirmed as many times. That doesn't mean it's not true, but we tend to we tend to, to elevate the things we learn from others more than the things we learn from ourselves. Mm. And I think it's a really it's it, it, and that's endemic in all industries, but I think it's especially true in dog training because um, it's such a fractious community. Uh, we don't have a standard body of knowledge that we can all agree is true. Like we can, like we literally don't have any any agreement on what dog training is supposed to be. Like we can't even come up with a universally accepted idea of what a trained dog is. We can't come up with a universal idea of what knowledge somebody should have, uh, whether that be even academic versus practical. Like we don't know like and we can't get any agreement and there are trainers out there who are i don't understand this but there are trainers out there who are proud of not understanding learning theory like they're proud of being ignorant uh i don't need any of that shit i just train dogs like yeah i hear you and some of these people are great trainers i'm not even i'm not even shitting on their ability to train dogs but why on earth would you ever be proud of not knowing more about what you do that's what kills me it's like, you know, like if you love this, learn. Like, and I think it comes down to like, I, I know I've known some musicians over the years that we were, were proud of not being able to read sheet music. And as a musician, I can't, I can, I can barely read sheet music. It's not good. Like, it's not something that I'm, that's uh, not a skill that I've spent much time trying to develop. Um, but I do know that I'd be better, a better musician if I could. I do know that I could do I could do more. I could do things faster. Um, I wish that I had time to learn more music theory, um, but I spend more time learning about dogs and behavior and that sort of thing. So, um, but but I I would never be proud of not knowing more about the thing I say I love. And I mean it's a bit of a digression, but the point is is that a lot of us have imposter syndrome, and I think that's why a lot of people are proud of not knowing anything because that keeps them from feeling bad about not knowing stuff. Like it's complicated, it's hard, it's intimidating. And they go, I don't need that. And then it becomes, instead of becoming a going, you know what, I do fine without it. I would like to learn someday, but I do fine without it, which is a perfectly respectable position to take. They switch that into, I don't need that. And now it becomes a point of pride. And when people do that, they're limiting themselves. So I find that to be very um, noticeable. And this is just my observation, so I could be totally fucking wrong. But I, my my observation is that I notice this a lot in the pet training uh, side of of like dog training, that mm-hmm. a lot of pet trainers feel that they don't need to learn or understand sports. 
And so I, I think I can only speak for myself when I say that once I started learning uh, certain sports, it definitely helped me so much more with clients and the things I was doing. So I like, I don't know, it's just something I've observed. So I'd be curious kind of like to what you're saying, if that's something that you've noticed or. So, yeah, like, so this is interesting because I'm actually working on an article kind of about this and I'm, I'm kind of stalling on it because I'm going to, I think I'm going to piss a lot of people off when it comes out. And I really don't like to, I don't like to be controversial. I tend to be controversial a lot, but I never intend to be. <laughs> like, like, it's it's not my goal I'll to say. It's not my goal to piss people off or to make enemies, but I I I I seem to be pretty good at doing that, um, uh, because I, I I do have this need to say what I believe. I have this need to to be honest about it, um, and I don't. And I'm not even saying that as a quality, as a, as a as a virtue. Like it's not. I I'm not particularly proud of it. Sometimes I wish I had a little bit more ability to bite my tongue, but, um. But like, I hear this all the time, you know, people will say, you know, sport dog trainers and pet dog trainers, they have a lot to learn from each other. And, you know, when people say that, what they mean is pet dog trainers need to be learning more from sport dog trainers. I have never seen anybody say to any high level sport dog trainer that they need to spend more time talking with pet dog trainers about what they do. It never goes that way. It's always pet dog trainers need to learn more about sports, um, which bothers me a bit. I was going to just say, I, I, yeah, I was going to say, I don't know that I would personally believe that because there are plenty of amazing dog trainers that are specifically doing sports who don't know how to modify behavior like aggression. So, well, so yeah. And that's what I'm getting at is like, so here's the thing. Well, one of the things I said back when we were doing dog training conversations and it was an aha moment for me. Like literally I was like, I just realized this while I was, while we were on air, I realized this, you know what I said? I said, I really admire people who teach dogs to do things. And I realized that at that point in time, 99% of what I, what I did was teaching dogs to not do things. And by that, I even mean when I teach a dog to heal, I was teaching a dog not to move out of the heel position. It was all about setting the boundary of where you're not allowed to be not where you want to be. And when I teach a dog to sit, I was teaching them to not ignore the sit command, not to actively sit, but to avoid. Uh, like, like, so even in my head, I was thinking about what the dog shouldn't be doing as a more than what the dog should be doing. And I realized this, like watching, this was, uh, I probably had just been exposed to people like Michael Ellis and, and, and them at, at that time. And I began to see dogs joyfully and assertively and, aggressively pursuing obedience behaviors as opposed to dog going fine i'll do it which had been enough for me up until that point and so the thing is is sport dog work is almost entirely about entirely about teaching dogs to do now don't get me wrong obviously you know you gotta teach a dog to not get a dirty bite or you gotta teach a dog to you know not break position and all that stuff but all of that is done in service to a goal of accomplishing a thing right there's a routine there is an overarching exercise the dog has to get it right to earn the reward the dog is in a uh, a competitive state the whole time uh or most of the time that's the way that that that, that you want a good sport dog working is striving to achieve a goal he's goal oriented he's task oriented 
he shouldn't be worried about outcomes. He should be worried about creating the outcome he wants. That's how you get a really good dog. And uh, in the pet world, like I said before, what people call us about is to get their dog to stop doing things, right? And so when I approach obedience, motivation-based obedience, like this is, by the way, this is why old school, you know, because I said so training is still so popular because it's it's mainly about stopping dogs from doing things. And that's the biggest problem people call us with, right? So I'm not saying that we shouldn't use motivation and uh, drive in our training with our pet dogs. or I call them family dogs now. I try not to say pet dogs because family dogs, I think, is more a more it's a better way to say it. It, it, it it's it's more uh it's more accurate to the gravity of what we're doing the importance of what we're doing they're not pets they're family and uh and we're, we're we're working with the whole family not just the pet so i try to say family dog instead of pet dog these days but with our family dogs like we do those obedience i do use food i do use toys i do use play but the thing is is at the end of the day Everything I'm doing is in service to how that dog lives day in and day out with that family. So I focus a lot on impulse control within training because that's the skill the dog needs to do other things. Like I said before, it's a safe environment for the dog to practice saying no to temptation. And everything I do, the way I train is in service, not to precision, not to gain the perfect clean sit or the perfect clean heel or the perfect sphinx position and down. It's about getting the dog to be able to read the situation and make better choices. And that is where family dog trainers excel. Our goals are different. The goal of a guy trying to get, uh, you know, on the podium at a PSA or IGP or ring event is different from the family dog trainer. And you know, like a lot of a lot of sport dog trainers live with dogs that 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 people wouldn't want to live with. Not all of them. I mean, there's some like, you know, Ivan is famous for being able to, you know, aside from being a phenomenal trainer, he's famous for having dogs that can chill. You know, like everybody else at the event has their dog locked up in a crate until it's time to go. And Ivan's casually walking around with his dog prong collar hanging down around his shoulders, like like nothing, uh, like like that's an amazing like i don't that's an amazing skill but most but that's not that's not that's not the description you know what i'm saying that's not the picture that they're like like most sport dog trainers i believe and, and i could be wrong on this but most of the ones i've talked to at least they would prefer to have a dog that was a little edgy at home if that meant they scored a little higher on the on the field whereas the the, the, the average family dog owner is the exact opposite. They prefer, they much prefer a sloppy sit and a dog they could hang out with than a dog with a super sharp sit who was annoying to be around. And so I think it goes both ways. I absolutely agree that we is like, I have learned a lot from my sport dog friends, Pat Stewart, Glenn Cook, uh, Tecla Walton, Michael Ellis, who I, I, I'm on friendly terms with, but I've never worked with him, but I've watched his videos for Smicky. Like there's a lot of guys out there who are really, really good. Uh, uh, Jay Jack again, you know, like he's, I mean, he's got his, he, he invented his own sport for crying out loud. Like that's <laughs> kind of the definition of a sport dog trainer. Um, and, uh, you know, and I've learned so much from those guys. I've learned so much from those guys and, and a lot of them have taken things from me. And I know that cause they've told me, um, but 
I think we tend to, again, we tend to put the guy who's on the podium on sort of a higher plane and, and what they do is very hard to do. Like, I can't do it. Like, objectively, Ivan, Bart, way better trainers than I am. And to be honest with you, Pat Stewart and Glenn Cook, way better trainers than I am on that objective level. But I don't know when it comes to creating just dogs who do well in their situation in the house. I don't know that uh, I don't know that I'm behind them. I don't know that 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 I'm missing something on that regard. When it comes to teaching dogs to do things, I have a lot to learn from those people. Like there's a lot to learn. But when it comes to teaching dogs how to just be, I think I'm pretty good at that. And I think I can probably help without risk of sounding arrogant. I think there's a lot of things that a lot of sport trainers could learn from me. I don't know about the guys at the top. I'm not trying to say that. I'm not in that level. But I think there's a lot of sport trainers who could learn a lot more about that. But because they're doing the flashy, sexy things, they don't, they tend to think that what we do in the family dog world is less than, and a lot of family dog trainers accept that as truth. And I don't, I don't think that's is true. I think uh, teaching a dog to not do, to not do without breaking their spirit when they don't have a goal besides just to get along, that's different than teaching them to not you know, take that dirty bite when they're, when they know the reward is dependent on it. Like when there's no reward at, at, at stake and the dog just has to make good, ch good choice. And to do, to do that without breaking their spirit, without using fear, without using a lot, a shit ton of pressure, that's hard to do. And it takes a great deal of nuance. And I think that that's missing from the conversation. I don't think we talk about it enough. And of course, you know, the, the, the danger of saying this is people go, oh, you're shitting on sport dog trainers. I'm not, I'm not. But here's another thing to be aware of. Like, again, uh, uh, I don't get to work with great dogs. Most of the dogs that I get to, most people have good dogs don't call dog trainers as a general rule. When the phone rings, the dog that's coming in to see me is at a deficit. Right. I don't get to work with the best breeding stock. I don't get to work with the dog that was selected for the task I'm training for. And I and don't get me wrong, I know sport dog trainers don't always do that either, because I know most sport dog trainers also have to do pet dogs. But every time I work with a well-bred Malinois, it feels like I'm cheating. <laughs> like I'm like, oh, this is so much easier than this, than 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 the six dogs I got earlier today. Like it's 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 like when you're used to driving sports cars, driving an old beat up pickup truck sucks, you know? But if you can drive a good old, old beat up pickup truck and then somebody gives you a really finely tuned automobile, like, wow, this is nice, <laughs> you know? Like, like it's just so different. So I, I think I think we don't do ourselves favors when we compare and contrast the, the I, I think you're right in to say that, that uh, you are going to find because people are looking to get high podium scores and get really precise levels of training, they're going to be more into the the theory because you don't get to the top of the of the nationals without knowing what the hell you're doing. And when the difference when the difference is a millimeter out of position, you got to be that deep into it. Like like that that goal necessitates a, a, a in depth look at the science 
of behavior. Absolutely, I agree with that. But here's something, a little bias that I discovered recently that I had that I didn't know I had. Or I should say that I didn't know it was wrong. Um, because to me, compulsion training is such an obvious thing. Like it's such an obvious, like just don't let them do that. Like that's such an obvious approach. I have been, and because the, the force-free community uh, hits us with science all the time, like it's like, 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 like a club, like all oh, the science says, science says. I have assumed for well over a decade that force-free trainers in general were more understanding of learning theory than balanced trainers. And there was probably a time when that was true. But I recently put up a question on my Facebook page and it was not designed to start a, a fight and it didn't, but it was, the question was, when you're in the force-free community or you're force-free adjacent, as I said, and you say you don't use punishment, do you mean positive and negative punishment or do you really mean positive punishment and negative reinforcement? And the uh, the amount of conversation that led me to believe that a lot of people who were call themselves force-free didn't know the difference was startling to me. I had assumed that that would be force-free training 101 is understanding the quadrants and it's not. And I had this bias that, that force-free trainers were somehow uh, more de in depth to the theory because I felt like you had to be to succeed without putting a shit ton of pressure on dogs, to succeed without flattening a dog requires skill and skill requires knowledge. And uh, I just assumed they would know more and they didn't. Like that's a that's a bias that I've had for a long time that I've now had to shift. Like like again, going back to where we started, like like I can't make assumptions about you just because what label you call yourself. Um, uh, you know, I mean, obviously, again, I'm I'm you look at Bart or Ivan or Ellis or Force Mickey or a lot of these other people. Like they've got they've got science down. Like uh, they've got the science down. There's not like <laughs> like, like, but I. I just felt like rank and file at the, at the mid level, the, the, the journeyman level, I felt like uh, you would find a lot more understanding of nuance on the force free side than on the balance side. And I think that's wrong. I think it's, I think there's, there's no, there's no way to predict that. And that was a, that was a real eye opener for me. But uh, I think, I think you will find that uh, I, I find that, most of the people I hear saying that they don't need to know that shit are generally more heavy-handed trainers because they're right. They don't need to know it. If I can flatten a dog, like, as I said before, uh, numerous times, the dog who doesn't do anything also doesn't do anything wrong, right? If you can suppress a dog into learned helplessness, you're done. Nobody's complaining about that dog. But uh, if you want a dog who's, you know, emotionally stable and emotionally uh capable of joy and and uh passion and loves to be alive and is happy but also doesn't make mistakes that takes a little bit more work it's not as easy it's not as obvious and i think that's where really understanding uh not only the technical aspects of learning but the the nuances that happen in the training room like uh, knowing like you can't learn to land an airplane from a book. You read a book all day long, right? You don't want the you don't want to be on the airline where the pilot has just read the book on landing. You want to practice it a few times. Like knowledge and the ability to translate that knowledge into action aren't the same thing. And uh, and some people can land a plane out instinctively. You know, there's trainers out there who just know how to do it. 
And there's other trainers who know how to tell you how to land a plane, but have never actually landed one. And, but I think the best pilots are ones who can do both, you know, and I feel the same way about training. I don't know. That's a bit of a digression. Sorry. I just kind of, but that's no, yeah, there's a lot of the, there's a lot of discussion about the quadrants lately and whether you even need them and just kind of throwing them away. And it's it's an interesting concept to think beyond them. I it, social media is hard though, because I feel like you get caricatures of groups of people. So to be fair, I know balance trainers and force-free trainers that are super into the quadrants and the science and they know what they're talking about but I also am super surprised sometimes when some people don't know at all like, like you said they don't know the difference between positive punishment or or a negative punishment I know when I was more um force-free I was trying to only use positive reinforcement or at least I thought so when I started educating myself, I realized that I was using a ton of negative reinforcement and negative punishment that I didn't know I was doing. And then I became aware of it. And then by knowing when I was doing it and when I wasn't doing it, it helped me to be a better trainer. And that's, that's my argument, at least to people that don't want to learn from people that are using those those other those other methods is if if you don't know how to use them or you don't know when you're in those contingencies like you might be in one and you don't even know you are and yeah. and that's that's like not dan i don't want to say the word dangerous it's kind of a strong word but yeah no i i think that's like so i think the quadrants you know do present a fairly limited uh view of things that's not so, like it's, it's again why can't we just go yeah they're valuable but they're not the be all end all why does everything yeah. have to be we don't need them or we have to base everything on yeah them? yeah Where, exactly it doesn't go, have to be like one or the other you know what it matters because it does yeah but it's not the whole enchilada like like it's like it's, it's you know i read a lot of behavioral science or i should say consume a lot of behavioral science content podcasts audio books written books ebooks websites discussions like i consume a lot of behavioral content very little of it is specifically dog related that's the smallest percent because everybody writing about dogs is writing with an agenda like sapolsky doesn't have an agenda when he talks about baboons and cortisol levels and dopamine levels. He's not trying to prove a point. He's trying to discover something. And he's saying, this is what we've discovered so far and here's how we discovered it. And here's what we know and here's what we don't know. Pangsep didn't have an opinion about positive punishment or negative reinforcement. Pangsep said, these are how these emotions behave. And, you know, Dr. Barrett, again, doesn't give a shit about dog training. I think a lot of these people will be surprised to find out how much dog trainers are reading their stuff. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like they don't care. They're not in, they don't, they're, you know, no pun intended, but they don't have a dog in that fight. 
So, but I think to play the devil's advocate to the point you were making before is, and I think this is where even me sometimes, like, I do get to that point of just like, I don't give a shit. Like, I swear the only time I talk about this stuff is on this freaking podcast and on Instagram when I'm talking with people. It's like, there is that urge to say, I don't give a shit about any of this science or any of the terms and all this this jargani. We make fun of jargon, you know, like, I just want to train my dog. And if my dog looks like he's enjoying what he's doing and he looks like he understands what I'm asking and it looks like he's having a great time, then like, like who cares? Who cares so what I'm, I'm doing, right? Like, no, you're right when it's working. Yeah, when it's working. Now, if I'm not doing it right, I'm like, oh my God, what is the problem? And I'm using all these things. Like, like I agree with you. And that's why I will admit I put myself through pain to read about the quadrants and read the studies and and try to keep myself learning even though it is much easier for me to just fill up a tree pouch grab a ball and a string and go in my basement down here with my dog and just like make some shit up you know like that's where I kind of thrive but I know that I need to understand like I, I do have this this yearning to understand what's actually happening behind it so that I can improve and it does it does it pays dividends when you do understand so like I have a problem okay like <laughs> let's, let's start with that like I have a problem and that is it's getting I, late here it's getting late now <laughs> we're going deep <laughs> we're going deep into the problems here we go <laughs> no my problem is, is is that I am intensely curious like uh-huh. yes. I, I used to, I used to take my toys apart and I couldn't put them back together. I yes, broke so man. many toys <laughs> because I just wanted to see how I got work. grounded for trying to cut a battery open once. My parents were not happy with that one. <laughs> to cut a what? A battery. You, you I was trying up, to. Benny. What did you say? Oh, uh, I'm sorry. I got in trouble as a kid because I was trying to like break a battery open, like a Duracell battery. Oh yeah. <laughs> it started yeah, getting dangerous. Yeah. <laughs> so like, I, where is this power coming from? <laughs> I am perpetually curious, especially about things I'm interested in. And uh, so uh, somebody once told me I'm a theorist at heart. And I think that's true. Like, it's, it's never enough for you to tell me what to do. I want to know why it works. Yeah. So like, for example, you get a dog, you tell him sit, and he kind of slowly works his way down. And you go, okay, you don't reward because you're not happy with a sit. And you walk away, you go sit, and he sits really good the next time. Like That's the technique that a lot of trainers would use, would know how to use, and which seems in- intuitive. But what they don't understand, what a lot of them don't understand, is what you just did was you created an extinction verse. Right? So the same thing happens. Like, like you go walk into a room, you flip the light switch on and the light doesn't come yeah, on. So their sit it, didn't work. So then the next time they are like, I'm going to sit fucking harder. I'm going to do this exactly. more. Yeah, exactly. And you understand that. And then when it doesn't work, you go, why didn't it work this time? How come the second time the dog didn't sit with more intensity? What, how come the dog looked a little bit even more confused? Well, that tells you the behavior has not been sufficiently reinforced because the, 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 the extinction burst requires sufficient reinforcement. If the behavior has been sufficiently reinforced, when the reward goes away, we get more committed, not less committed. So that gives me a clue as to where my training has gone wrong. Like, that's not just useless theory. That's practical information. Yeah. And that's what I'm talking about. When you understand these things, you don't even have to think about it. The point is, like, people tell me I'm too cerebral. Like I'm too much in my head. When I'm working with a dog, I'm not thinking in those terms. 
it just makes sense because I have all that theory sort of has become, like I said before, I want to put dog trainer brain into my client's head. The reason why you don't make stupid decisions when you're working with your dog is you understand how to get dogs to do what you want them to do. The more you understand about how what you're doing works, the more easily you can adapt it to the real world when you need to. So yes, it is valuable even if you don't see, general knowledge is valuable even if you don't see a practical, practical application for it in the moment. Because when shit goes off the rails, you have more information to break down where it went wrong. And you don't end up with some ham-handed fucking, well, he thinks he's dominant, excuse. <laughs> you, can, you can go, okay, what exactly does that even mean? Right? Like, like the dog didn't sit. When I took the reinforcement away, he didn't get more committed. That means either A, he doesn't understand, or B, he hasn't been sufficiently reinforced, which is another form of understanding. Like the solution is in, go back and teach it. It's not taught properly. Fix that and you fix the behavior. Like it's things like that. Like that's what I get. So like, that's like, it's so valuable to me. And I get so frustrated when people, and not you, I know Vinny, you're into this stuff. Like, <laughs> but, but I get so frustrated when people act like I'm wasting my time with this stuff. It's like, the reason I can rant for 20 minutes on some dumb shit is because I have my all this shit in my head and it's always in my head. I don't ever stop thinking about it, but I also don't ever consciously think about it, if that makes sense. It's just how it's it's the frame, it's the lens through which I look at the dog. And we all have those lenses, by the way. Like if your lens is I don't need that shit, I just get the dog to work, that's your lens. That's your lens, and that's the framework that you view everything from. If you are a dominance model trainer and everything is about status, that's the lens. That's your theory. Pete, I don't have a theory on learning isn't true. Everybody has a theory on learning. And I don't want to learn learning theory is a theory on learning. It's like that old Rush song, if you choose not to decide, you still have made a choice, right? <laughs> right? It's the same thing. Like, like you can't avoid having a theory. The obligation then is to make our theory as well-rounded and as accurate as possible because that's how we're making decisions that ultimately can result in a dog living or dying. Because if we don't succeed, dogs die. Not every dog, like not everybody who calls us. That's another thing that people will say, oh, I have to use this because all these dogs will call me. They're going to die if I don't do it. No dog is going to die if he jumps on grandma tomorrow. Like that is not what happens. Nobody has ever called me up and said, if my dog jumps on one more person, that's it. I'm taking him to the vet. Never happens. Like, yes, if my dog bites another person, yes, that happens. But but these people use really extreme training protocols because they're saving the dog's life. Nine times out of 10, that's a management situation. Manage till you train, buddy. Don't You don't have to do it all in one session. But that's a, another digression. I'm getting, I'm getting punchy now. Uh, but, no, this is, just, this is where the fun starts. So but, like, <laughs> but like the thing is, is like, is, like, is like, I take it very seriously. If you bring your dog to me and I'm the last step between that dog and the veterinarian's needle, I take that responsibility super seriously. That's the most sacred thing you can do. That's the most sacred obligation I can accept is if I succeed, your dog survives. If I don't, he dies. Why the fuck would I hamstring myself by not knowing as much as I can about that process? Why the fuck would I, would I ignore knowledge why the fuck would I think I have the privilege of ignoring knowledge? Like if a dog dies because if, could you imagine 
you have a client and you do everything you know how to do and you say listen i think the dog's broken and you know we gotta we gotta have this hard talk about euthanasia and they take the dog to the vet and you cry and they cry and everybody's all sad and then like a week later you pick up a book that was on your shelf for a year that you never opened and they have something in there that you think that you read it you go oh shit that could have saved that dog's life how the fuck are you gonna feel are you gonna go ah, i didn't need it no you're gonna be heartbroken and the thing is, is is we all have an end to our knowledge and when we reach the end of our knowledge we reach the end of our ability to help dogs and if i if i lose a dog because i didn't have enough knowledge that's on me like uh, obviously we can't know everything we're like you know what i'm saying like like the maya angelo quote, quote you know do the best you can till you know better and when you know better do better that's the fucking mantra of a, of a, of a dog trainer I've got to know techniques. I've got to know skills. I, but most importantly, I have to understand why those techniques work so I can adapt them. My most favorite things are things that, that aren't what I learned from somebody else, but they're, they rhyme with things I learned from somebody else. Applying something I learned from something else and putting it in a new situation. And you can't do that if you don't understand it. So to me, it is a moral imperative to know what makes these things tick. To understand so like bigger like bigger concepts and then being able to apply that yes yes absolutely um that's to me like 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 you there's so many times you're going to run into things that you've never seen before and at that moment your ability to help is going to be based on not your ability to get in really specific but your ability to generalize what does this behavior look like? What other things does this rhyme with? And how can I apply that? Like, it's all fun and games. I mean, we're having a fun time here and we're laughing and we're joking, but the reality is, is that, is that when we get it wrong, animals that we say we love suffer. And, and, and I don't ever want an animal to suffer because I don't know something. I, I, and it happens. I mean, every dog I've overcorrected, every time I've got frustrated and put too much pressure on a dog, every time I've got frustrated and given up, every time I've told somebody that, like, like I don't know, I, I hate to say that, I, I can't face that, like, like, you know, there's sometimes where you go, you reach the end of your knowledge and you go, I don't know where, where to send you. You know, one thing, one thing I have never said to anybody I refuse to say somebody is that dog's not fixable. But sometimes I go, I don't, I don't know if anybody has the knowledge to fix this. I'm at the end of my knowledge and I don't know where to send you. You know, like, like if I have a dog who's, for example, really real, like two dogs who are fighting the same house and I can't get, I can't solve that. I can't help them. I know where to send them. I go, you need to call my buddy Jay because he's an expert at this. If Jay can't help it, I don't know if he, he knows where to send them. You know, as far as I, he's the best person I know at that. Um, and so, like, I have to, like, if you know that you, somebody knows more than you about something, you have to keep them, keep that in your head. But, like, you reach the point where you're at the end of your knowledge and you don't know anybody more knowledgeable than yourself, then you're stuck. And like I said, there are 
but like there are people who are fundamentally broken. I'm sure there's dogs who are fundamentally broken. Like I, I, I had to recommend euthanasia for a dog a few years ago. They just had the anniversary of the right. Uh, and I know because the, the owner and I are still friends and he's, he's into training now. Like he's doing spite, bite sports with his dogs now. Um, we managed to get that dog another year of life that he wouldn't have had otherwise. But, you know, I think there was something wrong with him. Um, but maybe there was something that could have been done. Maybe we could have gotten to a a, 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 a a medical intervention. Maybe there was some sort of pharmacological solution. I don't know. I, like, But you don't want a dog to die because you don't know. And, and the only way I know of to prevent myself from worrying about that is to get as much knowledge as I can to get as deep an understanding of learning and behavior as I can, especially on the emotional side of it. Like to me, there's no, there, there, there's no reason not to do that. There's no compelling reason to ignore that or uh, to step away from it. It's super important to me. And that's, that's me. Like, like I, 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 we all have a problem, I think as, as people, but I know I do for sure. And that is that, that um, if it makes sense to me, I think it should make sense to other people. Right. Mm -hmm. and, and and when it doesn't, I get confused and I, I, I it's it's hard for me to stay like open minded about that and say they see things differently than me, because to me, this is such an obvious thing. So like. To me, I, I can't understand the idea that theory doesn't matter. Because it's all theory, like what we do is the practical application of theory, if, 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 if like no one would say you don't need to understand the story of Pavlov to train dogs. No one would say that. Nobody would say that you don't have to, you, you don't, you don't, you don't have to understand how reinforcement works to train dogs. Yes, you do. You don't have to understand how, how uh, pattern and response works to train dogs. Yes, you do. Like that's what it is. That's what it is. It's creating responses to patterns. And once you understand that, then everything starts to, you start, get, well, what, what more do I need to know about these pattern responses? How do I best create the patterns? Right? Like, at the end of the day, there's no difference. Like, there's no difference. Like, I'm going to get really fucking esoteric now. Uh, but like, so... Whoever's still listening at two hours in, I'm sure we still have their yes. attention. So yeah. go for it. <laughs> oh, but like, but like operant conditioning is just a subset of classical conditioning. Right? Classical conditioning is two events happen in close relation and there's an association made. All we're doing with operant conditions, we're adding an if-then if condition to that. We're adding another condition, and that is an if based on the dog's behavior. Mm. Right. So classical conditioning might be if the son, there's an example in uh, the power of habit, the guy who lost his short-term memory. And every once in a while he'd get up in the he'd get up, he'd go into the kitchen, he'd make himself some eggs, he'd eat them, and he'd go back to bed. And then like an hour later, he'd get up, make himself some eggs and go back to bed. Because he didn't remember he had eggs already this morning. Right, but some days he didn't do it. Some days he didn't. Some days they didn't. And what they finally figured out was there there were uh, two conditions that were necessary for that to happen. When he woke up in his bedroom, the sun had to be coming through the windows and the radio had to be on. If the radio was off, he wouldn't 
Hmm. Make eggs. If there was no sun, he wouldn't make eggs. Right. So those two conditions didn't met. All we do with operant conditions, we change one of those conditions to what the dog does to make it happen. Right. Right. That's all it is. It's not different. Operant condition is no different than classical condition. It's we're just we're just putting the dog in charge of one of the conditions about that determines what the outcome is. If the light comes on, you get a treat. If the light comes on, you press a button, you get a treat. That's it. It's still classical conditioning. We just call it operant because we're, we're making the distinction that the animal has the say in how the outcome. But when you get that, then you realize that that distinction is somewhat arbitrary. Now, is that when you find that the dog starts actually enjoying doing the work, like where you hear the idea of like, then the work becomes the reward? Um, I, I think. Or did I just completely miss your entire point? I hope not. <laughs> no, I don't, I don't know. Because I, I, like, like, what I mean is when I'm working with a dog, I don't think. So I, let me give you an example. I'll tell you how I, how I start a dog. Like assuming all things are equal, all things being equal, dogs first day in, they don't have any behavior de deficits. They're comfortable. They're food motivated. They're not like wonky anyway. They might be super incited, nor like, but they're not, a, they're not having a behavioral or emotional deficit. They're within that range and normal, whatever that is. Um, I start by just dropping food on the ground randomly. No markers no indication. It's a completely random thing. And I do that until the dog starts trying to figure out what's going on. Right. So I've not conditioned anything except for this room means food randomly shows. So the condition is if the condition is if I'm in this room, food shows up. Or maybe if I'm in this room and Uncle Chad is in here, food shows up. <laughs> Uncle Chad. Right. Like that's the first, that's the first, that's the first set of conditions. Right. And then when they start looking at me like you're the one dropping the food and they're trying to solve the puzzle, then I start adding my yes marker. Still random, say yes and throw the food. And they go, that's a clue. There's a clue there. He always says yes before he drops food. How did I miss that? That's fascinating. I like that. And so then I get to the point where if, and this is, this is where it becomes fairly standard. If they hear yes, they look at me. Like, so I wait till that point where they're, kind of distracted i say yes and do they check in with me okay now they know the yes marker right so far all these conditions have been irrelevant to the uh, have been uh, independent of the dog right and then i do again nothing extraordinary here but i want to go back to the why do i drop food in the first place i want the dog curious before i can teach the dog anything i have to be get him curious so Instead of me going, hey, look at me, I'm important. Look at me, I'm important. I get the dog to decide for himself that I'm important. And that matters because it's his idea, not mine. It's his idea to start looking to me, not mine. It's his idea that I matter. I'm not trying to convince I'm important. He's convincing himself I'm important. That's a much more stable way to go. So that's a huge, that's a huge thing. I think that's really important. And I don't think a lot of people are doing that. I don't, I've never, I've never had this conversation where someone goes, oh yeah, I do that too. I mean, maybe I'm maybe it's a real common in some circles, but I've never had a conversation where somebody says, oh yeah, that's that's what I do too. Most people just are going, yes, and throw the food, yes, and throw the food, yes, and throw the food. So then we change it to now I only say yes when the dog looks at me, but he's already been looking at me. That was the first condition. That was what made me start teaching the yes marker was he was checking me out. 
right? So that technically at that moment is operant. Does that make a difference to the dog? He was already checking me out. He was already looking at me. Now he's just learning the pattern. You know, I can make this guy drop shit if I look at him. That's kind of cool, right? And then I start moving backwards. And I'm using my good marker. Good, 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 good. And, and that just that good, 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 good. That gets like, what are you doing? He's already interested in me. He's already into me. I start backing him. He chases me. He, me. I go, he catches me. I go, yes. He's like, oh, if I chase this dude, he gives me more food. Right? At some point in time, we took a classical conditioning and we suddenly moved it to operate without the dog ever noticing. Because they're not different. We're only giving them controls of the conditions. It's still certain conditions must be met. The only difference is, is now he gets to decide whether he meets certain conditions or not. And that's why I say it doesn't matter. Right? It's not that important. But it is important if I'm going to have a conversation with somebody and say, I'm going to rely more on classical conditioning than operant conditioning. Understanding that you can teach a dog, you can change a dog's behavior by creating conditions that the dog doesn't control is super important. We start getting into reactivity, for example. Right? So again, classical counter conditioning. Other dog is present, food is present. Other dog is present, food is present. Other dog is present, food is present. Well, I don't want to reward the wrong behavior. Shut up, don't worry about it. Create the connection. Right? But people think they have to change the behavior first. But the truth is, learning doesn't happen when we change the behavior first. Learning happens when we change the expectation. Right. And that's what I'm talking about. That's why it's, it matters. These things do matter. If I if no one had ever explained to me the difference between classical and operant conditioning. I wouldn't see the value in just throwing food when the dog sees another dog, regardless of what he does. I'd still be that guy going, don't reward the wrong behavior. I cannot use the thought of losing out on opportunity as a motivator if the dog doesn't know an opportunity is present. So when I start just throwing food on the ground and that, it's the same thing, it's the same thing. What I do with a dog who's reactive is the same way I start that dog in the training room, except one of the conditions is another dog. Condition one, you're in the training room. Condition two, Uncle Chad is there. Condition three, there's a dog present and food rains from the sky. And that's like similar, like to like a real world example I see a lot is like alert barking, like a dog hears a noise outside and starts barking. You know, a lot of times, like even with my own personal dogs, like I go, thank you. And I throw food on the floor. Mm -hmm. Like, be, and a lot of you are like, oh, aren't you rewarding the barking? Like, no, like if I'm eating dinner and my dog comes next to me and barks in my face because he wants me to throw chicken on the floor, like, no, fuck you. I'm not like, you know what I mean? Right, like that's right, a different right. type of bark, right? Yeah. But if you get startled by the UPS guy hitting the package against the door and then you go, woof, 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 I'm not going to start yelling at you to shut up. Like, I'm going to just go, thank you. And food, 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 food. And then yeah. now when the dog starts hearing this stuff, they'll do like that half-ass little bark and then start looking at me, yes, you know, exactly. and then, and then like months down the road, when they start, like, maybe they're not even worried about it anymore. I go, all right, dude, like chill, chill out. You're not getting a treat every time, but then now the barking is gone. Right. But right. if I stuck there with like, I need to change the behavior first, like I need to get my dog to stop barking and then I'll give him a reward. Otherwise I'm rewarding the barking. I think that's what kind of you're talking about is yeah, so like people get stuck. So, yeah, so again, it's, it's learning is learning is about recognizing repeatable patterns, right? Significant repeatable patterns. 
Mm-hmm. Like we don't learn a pattern that's insignificant to us. It doesn't matter. We don't learn it. You know what I'm saying? Like, like, like we just don't. Um, like I was probably 10 or 12 years old before I learned that the moon phases go in order. Like I never noticed because I didn't care. I go, oh, it's a crescent moon. I could tell you the phase of the moon, crescent moon, full moon, half moon, all that stuff. But I didn't realize that there was a waxing and waning process. I never noticed that sometimes the crescent on one side and the crescent, and the I still can't tell you how the moon moves, like, like uh, how to predict where it's going to be tomorrow because I don't care. It's not that interesting to me. That pattern has been there my whole life. I'm 51 years old. That pattern's, that pattern's been there my whole life and I still don't understand it right? Because it's irrelevant. We only learn patterns that are repeatable and relevant, right? So learning is about creating a pattern response, a recognition of a pattern, a recognition of a relevant pattern. So we create patterns that are relevant to the dog, right? And so what you're doing with the dog barking is is you're changing the relevance of that pattern. Like the pattern means I bark and then I go get food as opposed to I bark and I get yelled at. Or I bark and then dad starts barking with me. And now we're both yelling at the door, right? Uh, or whatever. You change. So we, we're changing the expectation. That's what I said before. Like you have to change the expectation and that's how you change the behavior, right? And that's how reinforcement and punishment work, by the way. If the dog, if, let's say, for example, you, put a, you decide to put a prong collar on him and jack him up when every time he barks, he would, his expectation of barking would be different. It hurts when I bark, so I'm going to stop doing it. You're changing their predictions. That's all it comes down to. Right now, the the the, the actual details of that get incredibly complex and nuanced, especially if you want to do it in a way that doesn't involve whooping your dog's ass. You know, if you want to get out of the most obvious answers, that's where it starts to become fun and interesting. And that's where the puzzle starts to get in. That's the other thing, too. I love solving the puzzles. Like uh, uh, when Michael Ellis was on the Canine Paradigm, he said something that really resonated with me. It was something to the effect that I really enjoy the acquisition phase of tra- training. I really enjoy teaching the dog how to do things. When it gets to the to the the day in and day out, I get bored. And I'm the same way. Like, I don't like the repetitive part of it. I like the I like the how do I solve this problem when the dog's getting it wrong? How do I make this more clean? How do I make this faster? That's where I'm fascinated. Like, like when it comes to just just repeating the pattern, you know, that's when I start to lose interest. That's why that's why I will never be a high level competitive trainer because I don't enjoy that level of detail. I don't enjoy that level of repetition that it takes to get there. It becomes somewhat uninteresting to me, you know. And and uh, and so I'm happy to do the work that I'm happy to do. But the point is, is like, is like all we're doing is we're trying to figure out how to get the dog to expect something different in a way that changes their behavior. And uh, and you think about the things that dogs do so well, the things they call us to stop, right? People don't, people call us to stop barking at the door. They call us to stop jumping on people, uh, chasing squirrels, whatever. Like these are all behaviors that no one intended to teach the dog. These aren't things that the dogs were taught. These are things that dog, the dogs taught themselves. And they're robust. They've already, by the time they call us, they've already probably survived several attempts to punish them away. And often those attempts at punishment have only made the dog more consistent and more committed. So like, could you imagine, like, like, you should never do this. Like, no one should ever have this as a goal. But uh, if you could train a dog to sit and you go sit and you go, as soon as they sit, you go, fuck you. And you hit them with a really hard leash correction. 
and then you say sit the next time and they sit more enthusiastically, that'd be pretty impressive. You shouldn't do it, right? But that's what happens with all of these behaviors that people try and stop their dogs from doing, pulling on the leash. They go, stop pulling, fuck, and they just jerk the dog back and he doesn't slow down. He hits the ground. He goes, oh yeah, look at this. And he pulls harder. That is, that is a level of consistency that any trainer would be proud to get if they could develop in the dog. But for the most part, we don't get that unless it's something the dog is already driven to do. Like say, for example, bite work or something like that, that's been selected for it. Um, and the reason, one of the reasons the dogs are so committed is it's always their idea. Like those are things that the dog chooses to do on their own and they believe are valuable. And so if, if I can get a dog to believe that it's his idea, like that whole sequence that I talked to you about, I don't tell the dog I'm important. The dog tells himself I'm important. And that's a huge thing. The more I can let the dog decide that this is in his best interest without me trying to convince him of it, at least not in a way that he recognizes of, the more reliable he's going to be about that behavior. And, and so all of those things matter, like, but, but that all stems from the understanding that, that we need to create recognizable patterns. And there's really no, the difference between classical and operant conditioning is mostly illusionary. It's just a set of subsets, like, 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 like you know, all, all squares are rectangles, but not all, not all rectangles are squares, right? Mm -hmm. All condition is classical, but operant is a subset of that. They're not separate entities. It's just nestled within the idea of causal condition is this idea of giving the dog control of some of those conditions, whether they're met or not. Right? So, like, I mean, so put it this way, another way to put it is, is if, if the condition is, I'm in the training room, Uncle Chad is there, and my butt is on the ground, is that classical or operant? classical well it depends on whether the dog's butt was already on the ground and i started feeding him or whether he put his butt on the ground to get fed oh yeah i thought it was like his butt was already on the ground as he walked yeah. in yeah. yeah but yeah like i could i could do it that way like if every time i walked in and his butt was on the ground i fed him but if i walked in as he was standing up i didn't feed him eventually he'd figure out it'd take a long fucking time it wouldn't be like <laughs> <laughs> yeah like, i was gonna but, say that's like <laughs> but, but it would take a long but eventually he might figure out that and then what would happen? He said, as soon as I walk in and now it's operant. Right. right. But it's the same thing. All he's doing is creating the conditions necessary to produce the reward. And that to me is really interesting. And that, again, that's the lens I look through all day, every day. I don't think this out loud. Like it's kind of hard for me to describe it because it's such such a uh, fundamental part about how I think about these things, if that makes sense. Yeah, so, right. so, I, so I can't, I can't, I, I can't divorce the theory from the practice because the two inform form the other. Like they're they're interdependent. There's two sides, like operant and classical conditioning. They're two sides of the same coin. Like everything I do is dependent on the laws of behavior, whether I recognize them or not. You know what I'm saying? Like, like Isaac Newton came up with the, you know, the, the, the concept of gravity as being a force of attraction. That doesn't mean beforehand they weren't using gravity to make shit work. Like, 
like they were dependent on it, they just didn't understand it um but the law of gravity was already already in play but once he understood it that enabled us to do more things with it and to understand things like why things get lighter when you go higher up in the mountains mass stays the same but weight doesn't like those things are interesting but uh but you don't need the theory to do that and i just feel like like everything that everything that works with a dog or with any being is based on the laws of behavior which are exist which exist and there's no world where i can think of so once you, once you recognize that there's no world where you can go so therefore there's no point learning the laws of behavior like at no point does that make sense once you realize that that your dog is sitting because he's following a set of rules that are encoded in the way his brain and body work and the right in those conditions have been met and this is what he does and once you understand that it's like like why would you not want to understand that stuff you know like i'll give you another example i know we're going on forever now and like i said yeah it's all good we'll, we'll wrap it up soon but yeah maybe you want to break this into two episodes but like there is a there is a a study an experiment if you the basically if you give somebody a reward that's less than they expected they get punishment. more disappointed <laughs> huh? it's a punishment <laughs> well they get more disappointed than if you give them no reward at all yeah so like like my mom when i was younger she said not and i don't know that my mom my mom has ever done this she's a wonderful lady and i don't think she's ever been uh rude to a server at a restaurant before but she did tell me that it was more insulting to leave a two cent tip than no tip Hmm. right uh and i've uh, and, and the science backs that up so if i want to really make a dog feel disappointed i don't not reward reward like them, shit <laughs> i give them a less desirable reward like and i don't really i'm not in the in the business of making dogs feel disappointed generally speaking but having that piece of knowledge that sometimes can go oh this is interesting this is helpful like this allows me to make a choice, right? It also keeps me from inadvertently punishing a dog by giving a shitty reward. So if anyone's ever given their dog a dry piece of kibble for a reward and they take it in their mouth and then spit it right back at them, they know exactly what you're talking about, right? <laughs> well, uh, so that's interesting. I think I think a lot of times I I think a lot of times take dogs take the reward because they're trying to be polite. Uh like we put pressure like out on of them. habit. <laughs> yeah, but like. But like if if you've been using a lot of food for something and then they come in and you go, good dog and you pat them on the head <laughs> twice, like that like, maybe yeah, but... them at all. Yeah. But that can yeah. also kill drive. Uh-huh. Right. That can kill drive because disappointment, like like I want like the extinction burst is based on frustration. Right. Well, and that's where not so we're gonna open up a whole can of fucking words, but like that's why I use different markers. Like I don't use the same markers for toys that I use for food. Mm -hmm. Because if, if I tell my dog yes and he's expecting a tennis ball and I go, here's a piece of chicken, and he's like, chicken fucking sucks. Like now I could have just now my yes marker could be like, hey, like what does that mean? You know? See, I see it differently. I have my I'm uh -oh. like yes, there you go. yes, yes means something good. And you're pulling that slot that that slot machine handle, and it might be food, it might be a scratch on the head. You never know. But the but the the, the thing is, what you're doing is you're creating a firm expectation. 
yes through clarity and what i'm doing is i'm stoking hope right so the, remember what i said if you get a reward that's less than you expected it's disappointing mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. not if it's less than you hoped for mm. so i avoid creating an expectation of a particular reward so and then in my up. case, if I set the standard and then I messed up and use the wrong one, now right. I'm like, if I say yes, you're fucked, is what he's yeah, saying. Yeah, you're yeah, fucked. But this is where it comes into play, because if you don't know that, you can make that mistake. Yeah. Yeah. yeah right. Yeah. And I have deliberately made sure that I keep my rewards, my reinforcements variable. So they keep hope, but not expectation. I, I tell this to my clients all the time. Hope is way better than expectation. If you don't win the lottery, you're not disappointed. Hmm. You still buy a lottery ticket next week. You might go, oh, that sucks. But hey, because your expectation was low. But if your boss right. doesn't send you a fucking check on Friday, you're going to be not coming off. back on Monday. Yeah. Yeah. Right? That makes yeah. a lot of sense. Yeah, exactly. So like, I always want to create ex hope, not expectation. And that's, again, a fundamental part of it. And a lot of trainers do that, but they don't realize that there's actually science to support that idea. They don't realize that there's actually, we can actually watch the dopamine drop when the dog gets less of a reward or the monkey gets less of a reward than he expects. Mm -hmm. You know, like we can see it, like this is, this is repeatable information. And so what I love about reading about science, a lot of times is I'll recognize what I'm already doing or something somebody taught me. And sometimes I recognize something somebody taught me and I dismiss as being irrelevant. Oh, that sounds dumb. And then I read this, I read this, I read the science. I go, oh, wait a minute, maybe they're onto something. And and it's really nice. Like uh I I, I we can close with this thought if if you want. Uh it, it, it's this theory I have called the three witnesses. And uh, it basically goes that we only come from, we only learn information in three ways from three sources, reason, experience, and authority. That's it. Mm. The only places we get knowledge. So we either experience something and make observations and we learn, or we sit down and we think about things and we come to conclusions, or somebody who knows more than we do tells us this is what happens. Those are three places we get knowledge. Those are our three witnesses. I rank them myself uh, with experience, reason, and authority being last. If my reason contradicts my experience, then it's probably my reason that's wrong, probably. If uh, authority contradicts my reason, that's kind of iffy, but if authority contradicts my experience, authority is probably wrong. But if I have two witnesses that agree, if authority and reason tells me my experience is wrong, then I'm probably misinterpreting my experience. Right? It's probably not like an example of this. Uh, Daniel Kahneman is uh, unique in the world because he is the only psychologist to ever win a Nobel Prize in economics. Um, uh, and him and Amos Tversky essentially created the field of behavioral economics. And Tversky would have got a Nobel Prize, but he passed away before they were awarded it, and they don't give Nobel Prizes posthumously. So uh, Danny Kahneman got the got the award. And uh, my favorite story about him is when the Israeli Air Force came to him and said, "Listen, man, all of the psychology tells us that our pilots will do better if they are rewarded for good performance than if they're punished for bad performance, but that's not what the data is telling us." And he goes, well, that's interesting. Explain it to me. 
and they showed him the data. They said, so here we have a pilot who did really great that day, did an exceptional performance. And we said, hey, good job. We did whatever, we gave him the reward. The next day he flew worse. Now we have these pilots who they were exceptionally bad that day. And when they cut down the, got down the ground, we chewed them out, we reprimanded them. And when they flew the next day, they were noticeably better. So you can tell us all you want. Our experience tells us different. Reason and authority said that they should get better. They should respond better to rewards and punishments, but their experience said they didn't. And Kahneman, who also happened to be a statistician, says the data doesn't say what you think it says. You're, you're interpreting your experience wrong because there's something called regression to the mean. If I do exceptionally well today, I will probably do normal tomorrow, which will look like I'm getting worse, but that's my baseline. If I do exceptionally poorly today, if I have a really shitty day, I'll probably do better tomorrow because that's my baseline. So the rewards and punishments they were meeting out weren't actually affecting the pilots. They would have done, that's what would have happened regardless. You have to look at a, a, a trend. So in that case, reason and authority disagree with their experience, but it's because they weren't interpreting their experience correctly. So those are my three witnesses. When reason and experience tell me one thing and authority tells me different, I feel pretty confident going authority is misinterpreting their own data. Like, so when somebody says, oh, punishment always creates a problem, I'm like, you haven't seen it done correctly. Because I know it doesn't always do that, right? Uh, but when my experience, when I have two witnesses against me, then I have to listen, right? And so to me, that's the big thing. And, and you can't get all your witnesses if you're not learning. You can't get the, the third witness if you're only using reason and experience. You have to go to the authorities. And sometimes those authorities aren't dog people. Like as a matter of fact, dog people are often the worst authorities because they're just doing what they were taught and the way they were taught to do it. Like the example I used to give uh, is, you know, some guy back in the, you know, the dawn of agriculture. He puts a seed in the ground, he pours some water out, he sprinkles some ox blood over it and the plant grows. And this becomes the, the information he passes down to his kids and their kids and their kids for generations. The way to plant, you put the seed in the ground, you put water on it, you just sprinkle ox blood on it. And then in a thousand years, there's a war about whether you have to use ox blood or will pig blood, pig's blood suffice. When the blood was never, never the part of it, like it was never necessary. Like that's the superstition. So when you, when you start talking to trainers who are doing it, what they got from their mentor, uh, there's sometimes baggage that's added into there that's based on, again, going back to that theory of dog. This is how we view dogs. So we have to do these things, right? Like another example of that is the, the right about turn from the Keeler method of dog training. Dog goes in front of you, you go the other way. Theory is he can't see you because he's in front of you. You surprise the hell out of him. You make it unpleasant. He goes, I better keep an eye on this motherfucker. And they start walking next to you. It works. It works. It's super powerful. But I have found that I can get almost the exact same value if I just go, hey, spot, and then change direction without that hard jolt. Like the theory was you have to make it unpleasant. But in reality, all you got to do is teach the dog that you're a little unpredictable and that if he wants to stay with you, he's got to keep an eye on you. You don't have to add that extra level with most dogs. I'm not saying it works on every dog, but so there's that little bit of, of 
baggage from the assumption that you must make it unpleasant to make the dog prefer to not miss that turn. Right? That's the ox blood. You just need the seed in the water. The ox blood is irrelevant, right? So anyway, that's my three witnesses theory. Um, which I plan on also making a video about, but that's another. <laughs> so, <laughs> so if you're still listening and you made it this far and you had a shitty day today, don't worry. If things are looking up tomorrow, you're going to regress to the mean, right? Um, Chad, thank you so much for coming um, and chatting with us tonight. I know we like, I don't even know where we're going to, I guess the title of this episode is going to be Ox Blood because I don't know. I don't know what else to name it. We we touched on so many different things, <laughs> but um, this, is, this is my thing, man. Rabbit holes. All I, I I like it though. Yeah, I like the long form conversation where we just kind of get lost. Some of the feedback I've been getting is people just feel like they're sitting in a room with a bunch of dog trainers listening. So that's what we're going for. Um, is there? I know you kind of did a plug before, but before we go, any places people could where you want to kind of divert yeah, the energy on... towards? I'm on YouTube, I'm on Instagram, I'm on Facebook, something to bark about, subscribe if you want, like, hopefully there'll be more stuff coming up there. Um, uh, um, website is packedbasis.net, it needs to be updated, I haven't touched it in a few years, like, I keep getting emails from Google saying, hey, your website's kind of obsolete right now, so I need to get it back <laughs> on that, like, like, I'm not good, I'm not good at that side, I need to pay somebody to start handling that stuff for me. Um, so don't go but, to his website yet. <laughs> yeah, um, I got some workshops coming up. I'm going to. I'm going to be in Ottawa in uh, June. I'm going to be in the UK in July. Um, uh, I just. Uh, uh, I'm going to be. September. I'm going to Salt Lake City, or somewhere thereabouts. Uh, and I just booked this weekend in November. Look for me in November in New Zealand. November 2024, in New Zealand. So lots of lots of stuff coming up, uh, but uh, yeah, probably the best thing is just like, like I'm Facebook is probably where I'm most active right now. Um, but for sure, follow me on YouTube, like and subscribe, do all those things that you know YouTube people want you to do. Hit the bell, all that shit. Um, I'm terrible at self promoting, uh, but yeah, join the conversation. Um, I'm around. I'm always running my mouth about something because, as you may have noticed, I'm a bit opinionated. Uh, but I always try and be fair and reasonable and kind um, when I'm discussing things with other people. So jump in, have a conversation. Sounds good. All right, guys. It was good talking to both of you. Yeah, thank Thanks. you so much for thank you so much for having me on. And I'm sorry that we went so long, but that's what happens when you when you get me talking about dogs. I just don't stop. <laughs> <laughs> it's all good, dude. It's all good. Thanks for coming on. I enjoy meeting you. Yeah, likewise. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Canine Classroom. If you like the show, make sure to smack that like button, share the show with your friends, and give us a rating. Until next time, class dismissed.